everyone, this is Shragam, and I want to welcome you to the 35th episode of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. As we end another year, I wish everyone a smooth and prosperous 2022. On today's episode, we'll get to hear from Nick, better known as Rackhams. We talk about how his background in the automotive world allowed him to smoothly transition into the world of rosin pressing. We obviously talk about mechanical separation, the challenges of balancing the sharing of information, how his wife and her father have influenced his journey into hash and much more. So definitely stay tuned for that. Shout out to the community on Patreon for all their support in allowing us to continue to produce the podcast. On Patreon, we have the exclusive web series, which you can check out by joining our community. Visit us at patreon.com backslash the hashish in. That's the hashish inn, or use the link in our Instagram bio. Shout out to our sponsors, especially our main sponsor, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game. Again, you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. That's the number 100. Whether you need high quality rosin bags or want quality wash bags that don't break the bank, including their limited edition 250U micron bags, visit them at Rosin Evolution, where you can expect amazing customer service, speedy shipping, and high quality products. Don't forget to use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710, that's THI710. It saves you 5% on your entire Rosin Evolution order. Shout out to our homies and sponsors, Powers Plates, the small batch rosin press company, who you can visit at powersplates.com or on Instagram at powersplates. Again, a big shout out to all of you from the guys at Powers Plates for the overwhelming support this year. Their new batch of presses just got done being anodized locally. Scott's ready to assemble and test each of the units in his garage. That way, when you're ready to grab the highest grade rosin press on the market in 2022, they'll be ready for you. So go grab your favorite hash makers, favorite hash makers rosin press at powersplates.com. And don't forget to use our exclusive savings code, the letters THI. It saves you $75 off all their systems. Again, the letters THI saves you $75 off all the Powers Plate systems. Shout out to Six Star Society, your solventless apparel company, who you can visit at sixstarsociety.com. That's S-I-X starsociety.com. It's the perfect place to go grab all the gear that you need to show your love for the resin. Their hash adapt mats just landed. They've restocked their sold out six star credit cards, their star anorax jackets, which are available in both black or camel, keep you dry while looking fly, both in and out of the washroom. So whether you wanna treat yourself or buy a dope gift for your favorite hash lover, visit them at sixstarsociety.com or on Instagram at six underscore star underscore society. And don't forget to use our savings code, the letters THI, to save 5% on your entire order with Six Star Society. Shout out to Pele Polare, who you can visit at pelepolareco.com or on Instagram at pele underscore polare. The last thing I wanted to mention is that we're really excited to be doing another Coffee and Donuts live with Simply Adam. This time it'll be in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's taking place on February 11th and 12th, 2022. We would love if you would join us for this event in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in which we dive into the alternative art of modern day hash making 
Tickets are on sale now via Eventbrite. You can find the link in the Hashish in Instagram bio. That's at the Hashish I-N-N or on the coffee.donuts.atom account. We look forward to seeing everyone there. I appreciate you listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. Today, I'm stoked to be with Nick, better known as Rackham's. You can follow him on Instagram at R-A-K-K-E-M-S. What's up, man? How are you? Good, brother. Appreciate you coming on. Man. Yeah, definitely. Glad you can make it out here. Yeah, it's been nice to get back to doing these in person, man. We were just chit-chatting about how it's been a little shift over the last year, you know, with all the stuff. But it's been 18, 19 months now, I it's guess. It's been a while. Almost two years. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't seem like that long, but yeah. So it's good to be here with you, man. I appreciate you having me here and showing me your lab and kicking it for a while. And Definitely. Shout out to the homie Float Concentrate who's hanging out with us as well. Definitely. So Nick, you are kind of a new school hash maker, if I had to say. But funny enough, you told me in one of our prior conversations that you get people saying like, oh, you're like an OG of the hash community. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I think, I mean, to go back to the new school side of it, like I've only been in this shit for about five years now. Based off of that and what I show to the community as a whole, as far as what I give them, what I show them through social media, I think in a sense they take that and run with it and just assume that I've been doing this for quite some time. But in real reality, I haven't been. I think there's just a passion that I maybe project or a love for this plant that I project more so than maybe some others that make me seem that way. I'm not sure. It's, it's an interesting thing to think about because um, I would definitely consider myself an, an OG in other instances or other lanes more so than cannabis. So it's a trip how that works out. But like, with my music, what stuff? I've been doing music for 20 plus years now. And the automotive stuff that I told you about, I've been doing automotive stuff since I was 15, 37 now. That I feel like I'm an, I'm an OG in. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this cannabis stuff is so, it's still to this day, I'm consistently learning more and more and more every day. Um, but I guess it's just how I represent myself and how I hold myself as far as my morals and my values and everything else kind of combined into one it makes me seem like I'm like that. Yeah, that's cool, man. And you and I also talked about how some of the things you mentioned, like the automotive background, really has lended a hand in coming on strong. We, for example, with like the separations mm-hmm. and these types of things where like you're, you seem to be real familiar, but more so comfortable with like tools yeah. and things of the sort. And one of the things that you've been telling me a lot is you're like normal people or people with not a bunch of gear or a bunch of means to do this can do this. You just need to have the desire to make it work. Yeah. The drive for it. Yeah. I mean, my, my whole mindset and concept or thought process on this is, is very technical and hands-on. I mean, everything that we do is, is by hand if it's not using a machine of some sort, which is very far few between, but the people who actually do this, especially traditional hashishans, it's all with their hands. So it's using that, as their tools more so than anything else. So for me, it was just kind of second nature when my boy, Matty Bubs, shout out to him. He brought, he brought over the, his phone and showed me the hair straightener. Phil from Soil Grown Solvents. 
pressing down a nug. It's like, well, shit, I can have a bearing press downstairs. We can do the same thing. We won't have to <laughs> dirty anything up or none of that shit, dude. So we came down here and grabbed one of my girlfriend's hair straighteners and had at it. Went to, went to town on some nugs and crushed her hair straightener. She's super pissed. Yeah, you said that was after like two runs? Yeah. That was, <laughs> the place just couldn't handle it. No, it was it was a wrap. And then I ended up uh, taking it apart and just taking the heating elements and like discarding all the other shit. But it just made sense to me. It was initially when he brought it, brought it up. It's like, have you, have you heard of rosin? I was like, what the fuck's rosin? And that this time I was a transmission mechanic and had all the tools like we just spoke of. He's like, yeah, they're they're pulling or extracting the oil from flour or hash, and I've heard of hash before, but not in this way or in this manner. I've always just thought of hash as like something you would sprinkle on a bowl, or or put in a joint or something of that nature, like a complementary thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, like garnish, I guess you could say, or or just like a a temple ball, old school, traditional stuff, and never really thought about it being smoked just by itself like a dab of some sort or extracting the oil from that hash. So we took it upon ourselves to try to figure out how to do what these kids were doing online. Not kids. I don't, I don't know how old Phil is, but. Yeah, he was pretty young at the time, though, I think. Yeah. I mean, this was five, six years ago, I guess, now. Somewhere around there. Somewhere around there, yeah. And I'm sure there was other people that had did, did things like that on accident prior to him. I'm sure Nicotia and a few other people have talked about that before. Like, it's not that rosin has necessarily never been around. Right. I feel, I've talked to multiple people about this. I feel like what Phil did was create a way to replicate it Mm -hmm. and be able to, like, almost standardize it versus it being an accident Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, he, he, I think a light bulb kicked on in his head. And by videotaping or recording that, sharing it, it as well. Yes, yeah, the other thing. sharing it kind of just sent it to the roof and on off to another level. That's how I found out about it because I didn't know about any of that shit. I had never made hash in my life prior to this. And Maddie's like, "All right, well, you can take some flour and press that." And I started talking to one of my other buddies, Dustin, talking to him about hash. He's like, well, yeah, you can just grab like these bubble bags from like Amazon or, or I don't even think I knew about uh, Marcus before that BC bubble man. He's like, you can get some bubble bags or like different micron sizes and you can put your material on the top. And he's like, if you don't want to use water and ice, you can use dry ice. So I fucked with that too, which is a totally different conversation, <laughs> but we did it. He's like, you get a drill and you get to put a paint mixer on it and you just hammer that shit and you pull the bags out and you'll have your your trichomes, your hash in each bag. And you can dry that out on some pizza boxes or something and then press that. I was like, fuck, okay, cool. That's what I did. I had a Home Depot five gallon bucket with these shitty ass Amazon bubble dude bags or whatever the fuck they were. (laughs) Bubble bag dude bags. Don't buy those, please. (laughs) If you want to be a a real hashishan. But it was just like, yeah, I had I had a drill that was like. So 30. what was the knock on them? I just I'm curious. Well, the with bu- the bubble bag yeah. dude, his microns are way off. If you actually dope scope them and you can actually measure them, they, there's it's too inconsistent. The actual quality of the mesh that's being used, you might get a 90 bag, but it might be like a 96 or a 84. 
or something in that range. Right. Maybe even more, maybe less. They were just too inconsistent to actually have a quality hash follow or fall through the bags properly. So, I mean, they're, they're great to learn on, I guess, in a sense. But uh, definitely not something I would do to try to make a six-star full melt by any means. But, yeah, we had that shit. Figured out how to make the hash. Dry the hash. I think uh, my first couple of times trying to dry hash was horrible. Like, I didn't wait long enough. But I learned really quick. Started talking to more people. Started learning tech on how to dry the hash properly, naturally, not with the freeze dryer because we freeze dryers didn't weren't around. So, how did you know that the hash was not dry enough? By pressing it and hearing like a crackling, popping sound, a sizzle, and that was the moisture that was still remaining within the hash. Which is what you hear sometimes, like when people say that hash is wet and they mm -hmm. take a dab, or there's too much moisture in there. Yeah, terps can do the same thing. Terps can actually make shit sizzle as well. If there's too much, too much terp content, but that's a totally different conversation. I mean, going back to the moisture, that that's what you hear. That's a kind of a telltale sign of something's not right. You didn't dry your hash enough or you got moisture in your shape or form. And since we're on the point of moisture, not to deviate from the conversation, but I know you don't have a lot of experience with flour rosin, but you did mention to me that you did find that the moisture level of the biomass had a lot to do with how it reacted under the press. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the drier the, the actual plant material is, the harder it is for that oil to escape and be pushed away from it. Because all that plant material is wanting to do, especially since it's hot, is reabsorb and pull that shit back. So a little bit of moisture goes a long way when it comes to actually pressing flour. You, you don't want to have too much because then it'll be wet and you'll have that moisture react and boil, especially if you're pressing around 200 plus degrees. What's water boil at? Like, yeah. You're a chef, bro. You should know that. I don't know. It's like it's there's a reaction that happens, but with the flour, when you're pressing flour raw or in a bag or however you want to do it, there's a happy medium of that of that humidity or that moisture level that needs to be there in order for that oil to be pushed out and flow smoothly. And so that's pretty much as far as I go when it comes to the flour rosin. It's just it's another thing that kind of makes common sense. Like if you have a nug, five five grams of flour. It's super dry. Good luck trying to push anything that's liquid away from that. When it just it's, it just wants to suck it all back in like a sponge. Right. So you you need that moisture to kind of play a part and, and assist you. But too much can become devastating. So there's that. Yeah, you because you told me you pressed some flour that was way too wet, right? And it was just kind of a big mess. And this I've done a couple fuck ups in that instance when I first started because. I had that bearing press that I had before I even knew what rosin was, designed our own plates, and then bought a MASH 710 PID controller and hooked them up to the plates. A couple of different things happened. There was one time where I was like, I was just kind of r and d like, well, what happens if we'll press fresh flour? Like, literally cut it off the stem, bring it in, and hit it. Right. We did that, and I think we got some, like, rose-colored water that just started gushing out everywhere. <laughs> and the next thing you know, the, the plant itself, once it got down to pressure, just went poof and like exploded out every direction. Wow. It's pretty intense. But also we pressed stuff that wasn't completely dried properly. And the actual PID controller was in Celsius, which I had converted. I have a conversion table and that helped me, but it wasn't even uh, what it said it was. So 80 degrees Celsius is about 180 degrees Fahrenheit. I think I had this thing at like 82. 
come to find out it was about 280, 300 degrees Fahrenheit. I had no idea until I actually put like a heat gun on it after the fact. But the reason I found out it was super hot, so I was starting to pound down on this flour and I ended up doing it with hash too and just added the pressure. It had no pressure gauge, so I didn't know how hard I was going. Right. Um, All I had was a timer and my fucked up temperature gauge and started applying pressure more and more and more and more and me and Maddie are sitting there right in front of the press and sure enough, like we hear sizzling, crackling, and then black tar oil just goes everywhere all on our faces. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when Maddie gets up and he's like, "Nope, I'm done. I'm good. You have you do you do you." <laughs> so he it. he showed you the tech, but then that was enough for him. Yeah, yeah. He didn't have the time or the patience for it, and that's when I realized that I'm gonna have, gonna need patience for this shit. Like that's gonna be what makes it break. Breaks what I do. Right. Yeah, so you grew up in the South Bay? Yep, San Jose area. That's where I was born. And you told me prior to getting into this whole rosin thing, you did smoke cannabis, but it wasn't like... Yeah, I mean, I consumed, just like any other teenager, and ragamuffin, and just smoke pot, and with all my friends. Had an instance where a, a, good, a good friend took his life while he was on some, and it was, but ended up being laced with another drug that would rather not even just not mention in general, but it fucked him up and took him for a loop and he killed himself, committed suicide. And, but I didn't know that the two were combined at that point in time. So I just looked at it as, as the weed is what made him go crazy. So I took a step back and that was in my, my uh, early teens. And I was like, um, I'm good. And I don't want, I don't want to do that. But then I moved up to the East Bay and 13, 14 years old. Uh, far East Bay, like uh, Contra Costa County, county area. And met my, my new family, my new group of friends in there. Kind of lived my life there. Started to come into my middle, later teens. Um, started to smoke again and be surrounded by it even more. That was about the, the extent of my cannabis life, if you want to call it that. I just If it was there, or me and my boys were wanting to play video games, or we were doing graffiti or DJing and we had some joints to roll up or whatever, a blunt. We'd roll up a blunt and hit it and go on about our day. But never was I ever involved with like the growing or the selling or anything of that nature. Never really thought about it. Never was at the forefront of my brain. Um, I was so immersed in the cars and music back then that I never really thought about that ever. Probably not until my probably mid mid to late twenties is when the same dudes who I would smoke and play music with and whatnot, I started realizing that they were hustling alongside that. And then I bought my first home at 23 in East Bay and had a few of my good friends back then living with me. And they'd always have a couple pounds underneath their bed and always had a safe locked up with a gun underneath the pillow. I was like, okay, is this really going on in my house? (laughs) But I didn't think anything of it. Just uh, ran with it because they were my homies and this is what I did. It's how I lived my life. And I just kept on about my business and did the automotive gig. My mantra back then was dirty hands, clean money. And which is now turned into a franchise of some sort. And somebody took the name and ran with it. was making money on it, which I'm pissed about. But it's my my bad for not getting to it before them. So good on them. But I mean, it, and that wasn't also because I was against cannabis or was against 
other drugs and shit like that. It's just that I always had dirty money or dirty hands and I always had clean, clean money. That's just, it was a kind of a joke or parody of things, which is kind of cool now when you roll around 360 and you have uh, Dirty Hands Clean Hash. There's another brand, uh, I think, there in Willits area. Okay. Shout out to them. They, I wish I would have came up with that fucking name because that's, that's what I would have stuck with because it <laughs> kind of flowed with what I was doing in a previous life. Yeah, I mean, going from the late teens to the 20s in that aspect and then meeting my wife about eight or nine years ago and then realizing that she does grow weed which we she was kind of concerned about initially when we first met because she knew I was kind of about that dirty hands clean money deal she was worried in a sense like if I would not vibe with her right and which was totally not the case because I knew about her before we even met she's a DJ as well and we're both in the same type of music scene in San Francisco and I've been watch I was watching her for maybe the last 15 years like, damn, who's this hot little girl DJing and shit? So that I we always knew about each other, but we didn't actually know each other. Right. And she had probably already been growing for about five, six, maybe eight years prior to me us linking up together. And the rest is history. I mean, she showed me what she does in her garden. And we continued to do that for the first few years, up until today, or current time. And then about Four and a half, five years ago is when I got introduced to the to the hash game. And now we're here. Yeah, that's cool. And it's interesting that you guys work together. And we've talked about this privately a little more. But mm-hmm. since the hash has come onto the scene, she's a flower grower. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to see you guys as a couple, but then also professionally having to collab in essence together and I know you guys are working through trying to find genetics that basically work for both and you know from the little I know yeah it's not an easy feat so tell us a little bit about those challenges yeah it's a tall order to ask uh, for a person who is so wrapped around her thought process of of flower and growing in general she grows for smokable consumption period what she was taught how to grow. Um, I mean, even back then, there wasn't there wasn't probably that many people that were growing for processing into a concentrate. It just wasn't heard of. Almost all flowers always grow for smoking consumption. So once the reality set that there is a difference between growing for hash and growing for flower, to me, then I had to figure out how I could relay that information to her and allow her to understand that, that there is a difference but they can be mitigated and probably possibly brought together if we do for play our cards right. So that whole process took some time. I mean, she's a sour diesel grower at first. That's what she learned how to grow from the get go. She grew that for about, I think eight, 10 years straight and crushed it. Like some of the best sour D I've ever smelled in my life. But then we needed to expand. And plus the genetics at that point, I think it was a, uh, I might be getting this wrong, but I think it was a Bubba Diesel. It was a sour diesel crossed with headband. Just super gassy and massive nugs. Beautiful, beautiful flower. But the genetics started to fall off. So we needed to figure something else out. In the sense of like uh, genetic drift or it was just genetics? They were starting to degrade, I guess you could say. Like it, they, they weren't as 
because the way that we or she would grow is she would have a mom grow that mom up, cut off that, and then have some for her, for her flower room, and then have a few to make new moms of. So it all came from one phenome consistently. And that just slowly started to degrade out, to degrade out. And it's like, all right, well, I guess now's the time to try messing with new genetics. And I think that was probably before I actually got introduced to hash and rosin, but slowly but surely kind of combined into one. And started watching Bubble Man, who uh, Matty Bubbs told me about. Learned a lot from him real fucking quick on his podcast. Started realizing that there's, there's a difference between these cultivations for smokable flour. Solventless Mind was a big one. Talking about like the difference between dried and cured. Cured is is in reference to smoking flour. Dried is for is for like sift or hash reduction. And a lot of people get those terms confused a yeah. lot of the time. So break that down for us a little more. Well, basically, if you're curing flour, you're curing it to be smoked. If you're drying flour, you're drying flour to be processed into something else, like a dry sift or a hash. Keef, even so, it's the intention. Yeah, right. And people get those those two words like just mixed up more often than not. So whenever I say something, I usually got to say like dry cured, because if I say one or the other, they're going to get confused. So, so in your case, when you work with your wife's material, a lot of times it is dry, Mm -hmm. if not mostly. It's dry cured. The flour is cured. Does that? trim stay on the flour until you are ready to process it? Well, technically, yeah, until it's trimmed. So our drying process, pretty much to break it down, is we harvest at the right time based off the terpene production, not terpene, but the trichome production. Just one of the things that I had to get her past was the like using the hairs as your only reason for cutting down at a certain time. Getting past that and focusing on the trichome production which we have to use like a microscope or what I call a dope scope, a little ring, ring scope or something. A little jeweler's loop type thing. Exactly. Yeah, we'll put that, grab a sugar leaf and check it out when we think we're at like eight or nine weeks, depending on this, the flower's uh, flowering time. And we'll see where the heads are at, if they're clear, milky, or amber. And that in turn will decide when we cut it down. Right. And we'll, we'll figure out like a good percentage of, of those consists or those colors that we're looking for. And... In a sense, all right, if there's like maybe 10% amber in that, we'll, we'll cut down now. Or if it's like clear to milky, we'll maybe wait a few, a few more days. What a lot of people don't understand, don't realize maybe, is that that time frame for where the clear goes to milky and then goes to amber is a very short period of time. It's roughly, if I'm not mistaken, it's roughly anywhere between about four to five days that that transformation happens going from clear to, to milky or opaque to amber. And that whole process is a process, process of degradation, in a sense. It's your THCA converting, if I remember right. But essentially, we'll take, the, we'll take the plants down when we see more milky than clear. It may be a little bit of amber, because we know that conversion is happening, happening as we speak. So we'll cut down, and then we'll hang for about... Anywhere between 10 to 14 days, and that drying time dictates what's going to happen to the flower post-process. We're, as we're drying, we'll dry about 
10 to 14 days. And then from that 10 to 14 days at 60, 65 degrees Fahrenheit, we'll keep that temperature as, as steady as possible, but also make sure that the humidity is staying around 55 to 60, 65% humidity. Once that flower is properly cured to that, to those temperatures for that period of time, we'll take them, we'll buck them down and we'll trim them up. And whatever's left over, whether it's larf, littles, or the trim, that automatically gets bagged up and put into the freezer pretty much instantly. We'll, we keep our trimming facilities down to 60, 65 degrees as well, trying to maintain that, but preserve the, the most amount of terpenes possible until it gets processed into hash and sent into rosin. Did your wife's practices change at all from how she was drying or curing? Prior to me? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the process was a little bit quicker before I started taking more of that role on. Right. Um, just because of time constraints, I guess, maybe. I just wanted to get it dried and trimmed and done. Um, but there's a we both realized pretty quickly that there's a curing process. And plus, even smoking the flower. You'd rather have something that's smoked something that's cured properly versus dried quickly because of time constraints, you know? Right. So I'm sure I, I can't really speak for her in that regards, but I'm sure I, if I remember right, like the drying time was fairly shorter in a sense initially. And how about like the bucking down of the material? Has that changed for her working alongside? Here? That's all been pretty much the same except for vi environmental nuances, temperatures okay. and things of that nature. Moving forward, we always want to make sure that everything stays below or at 65. That's just kind of a roundabout number that's been brought up upon by many growers and many hash, hash producers that are farmers as well, that they feel is right for our plants. And also finding out through scientists that the most volatile terpenes burn off or expose themselves around 65, 70 degrees Fahrenheit, the monoterpenes. So having that as knowledge in my back pocket made me understand like, all right, as soon as this plant's cut, whatever's going to happen to it after the fact, it needs to stay below at or below this temperature until it gets processed into rosin. So that's what we do. And I think that's where we kind of have a level up on some people in a sense when it comes to terpenes and whatnot. Some people might not be, might not be able to wait that long. You know, two weeks is a long time for the material to dry. So there's another thing that you can do is a partial, a partial dry, a partial cure, whatever you want to call it. And Pedro's grow room, Pedro, he does this uh, drying process for his. It's not necessarily a fresh frozen. It's not necessarily a dry. Still got a little bit of water weight in there. Somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. It's a, once again, a happy medium, which is what I'm always trying to find is that happy medium. Whether it's a person that's growing for flour, but also wants to produce hash, you got to find that happy medium because you can't have one or the other. You can't have both. It's got to be one or the other. With that, with the drying process, if you're able to do a partial cure, because you can't wait that long for whatever the case may be, you can do like a three to five, six day dry at the same temperature, 65 degrees Fahrenheit or slightly lower, because you will have that fluctuation or the humidity being somewhere between 50 to 50 to 65, 55 to 65. Do that for a few days. That'll get majority of your water weight out and dispersed. And you can possibly end up with a, somewhat of a same quality turf profile as a live rosin, but also a better yield, like a dry hash rosin. Right. Almost. Yeah. This, I don't know. It's almost like a theory, I guess, but like almost that time gives a little hardening. Yes. To those 
cuticles. Yep, the, the cuticle, the, the, the membrane of the, of the actual trichome head, it gives it a little bit of time to solidify and kind of harden up. Like, when you, like for an example, like a, a grape to a prune or whatever, or a raisin, and, you know, it gives, just gives that little bit more structure around that head to keep that oil in and less chance of it popping too. That's another aspect to think about too. When you're dealing with fresh frozen, you're dealing with straight up water balloons that have some might have a fairly thick cuticle, but they're soft and malleable and can just pop like that. So if you give that flower, that material, just a little bit more time to dry or just to kind of sit and do its thing, even three days, that can be a game changer in somebody's end product and still maintain those live whole plant, fresh frozen terping profiles. And instead of 6% or 3%, maybe you, maybe on a 3%er, maybe you get 6% now or eight or nine because you remove that water weight, but you also solidified those heads just a little bit more. I think a lot of people don't think about that. Partial cure is something that's kind of talked about now as of recently, but not as much as I'd like it to be, especially for post-processing, whether it's into hash or rosin, so on and so forth. So let's talk a little bit more about terpenes and drying material because you work primarily with drying material and you said that you know you don't see a lot of people doing that so what have you learned by working with a lot of dry material i've learned that the terpenes the terpenes themselves actually do change as far as the structure and smell of them whether it be from the plant to the dry material to the post process of rosin like at the, at the end of the line in comparison to live rosin some for the good some for the bad just depends on your genetics that you're working with I think that's been one of the biggest eye-opening things. Like sometimes I'll smell smell a plant, uh, the dosi dose we had, it smelled like kind of a peppery sugar type of terpene profile on the plant. Then we bucked down into the bins after it was drying and it smelled like we opened the bins and it just smelled like a butter bakery. Like, remember that? It was just like, like croissants. Yeah, like like a fresh croissant dipped and doused in butter. Next level. Didn't smell that on the plant, but we smelled it after the fact. So I feel like there's something to be said there when it comes to your terpenes and how they evolve, even just by hanging them, whether it's for two weeks or three or five days. I don't, I'm not sure if it's like a development thing. Wish I was a little bit more of a scientist when it comes to answering that question in that aspect, but something is definitely going on. And I think the same could be said too with, with fresh frozen you're still, so as soon as you cut that plant down and you lock it in and freeze that shit before within four hours, which is a lot of people, which a lot of people say is the best thing to do, you're kind of preserving what you smell on that plant as is, which also could be a great and amazing thing, obviously. I mean, most, most makers and most brands nowadays are doing fresh frozen for that purpose because they want it to smell exactly like it smelled when they pulled that plant to their nose. And I think there's differences there. There's, there's things to be had and said when it comes to giving that plant the time to express all those terpenes to its fullest potential with a little bit of drying time. And it's nothing against fresh frozen. I just more often than not don't have the means and the ways to acquire properly grown fresh frozen for hash. So I'm forced to use what I have at my hands and my fingertips and that's dried material. And that's why I fuck with it more, more so than the other. But you also mentioned that you feel like the fresh frozen material and the hash that it produces. Like maybe it's too many terpenes. 
with the fresh frozen. I think it, I don't think it's too many in that sense. I think it's it's too many of the ones that we don't necessarily want. Those monoterpenes that we speak of, which is also not not much that I understand fully. But my gist of it is those monoterpenes are the most caustic, the most harmful to our bodies. So why would we want to ingest that? Hopefully, by the time you actually get those dabs in, majority of those monoterpenes will be off-cast anyways, because your final product has already been introduced to heated plates at 150, 140, 160, 180, whatever your temperature is, and then possibly cured, whether it's a cold cure or even some type of warm top of the press type of cure right hopefully by then those those main mono turbines will be off cast and expressed and and that's what your majority smelling but i think some of them still linger to a certain extent so i don't think i don't think there's too many terpenes i mean once you get once you start getting involved with uh, post-processing and making and separating rosins and reintroducing and things of that nature, then you can start getting into the realm of having too much of a physical amount of terpenes when the percentage starts to become an issue. Instead of four or three, three or four or five percent terpenes, you you have eight, nine, ten, twelve percent terpenes. It's a little much. And that's just based off of what I've heard and spoke to about with within people who know what the fuck they're talking about other than me. I think it was a Tony Vizura, to pronounce his last name right. He was also part of Bubble Man's Hash Church for a while, doing part of the Blue River. He talks about terpene percentages a lot and how some of his stuff has is in like the low teens or the nine tens. Like I just, it, I can't fathom that. It seems like a lot. And a lot of terpenes go a long way or little terp, little bit of terpenes go a long way. It doesn't take much, but yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. And it should be, should be spoken about a lot, a lot more than it is. People. Yeah, fresh frozen is very relatively new thing as well within cannabis. Yeah. And a lot of these types of concentrates or hashes, if you want to call them, are also kind of newish. So in the end, really nobody knows. Like this is kind of like the first group of people that has smoked have smoked these very high mono and sesquiterpene mm-hmm. varieties and conserve them and smoke them as is type thing. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see how that stuff plays out, you know? For sure. I mean, the, the science will tell soon enough, which I mean, it already slowly is. Everything that we're finding in this plant is pretty mind boggling. And there's still so much more to be discovered as we speak. I mean, we just, we're just coming across a new cannabinoid THCP, which skunk man just talked about recently. And he just dabbed for the first time. Said he did, I think two or three dabs and he couldn't walk. <laughs> it's a skunk man we're talking about like <laughs> talk about a high tolerance so the veil has not been completely covered or uncovered yet for sure well cool man I think this is a good opportunity for a smoke break you done yeah sounds good shout out to the homies and sponsors Powers Plates the small batch rosin press company where you can visit at powersplates.com or on Instagram at powersplates they've been developing their presses since before rosin presses were a thing and over the last five years they've been fine tuning Powers Plates into the highest grade press on the market including standardizing anodizing all their platens what else makes them high grade everything about them from using the highest quality components inside their system like their custom smart thermocoupler which learns your patterns of use 
to including features like their pro spring design to ensure smooth operation, as well as features like their beefy 4x8 working area. So if you're in the market for a rosin press, specifically the highest grade rosin press on the market, then visit Powersplates at powersplates.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-S plates.com and pick up your favorite hash makers, favorite hash makers rosin press and don't forget to use our exclusive savings code, the letters THI, standing for the Hashish In. THI saves you $75 off all PowerSplate systems. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. So let's talk about the sessions, man, because I feel like definitely that was a part of your come up. Yeah, sessions kind of uh, what helped, helped build the, the platform that Rackham sits on currently. The California, Northern California sesh scene is something to be said in itself it's very interesting and um i don't know what the right word is for it intriguing in a sense of where it's like a it's literally a cannabis farmer's market like no other way to describe it underground cannabis farmer's market are what seshes are in northern california specifically in my area sacramento all the sacramento seshes i won't name them because i don't want to feel like anybody's left out or any of that nature, but there's quite a few of them that pop off every now and then, still to this day, and back when I started, that continue to push the envelope, so to speak, and in regards to law enforcement and authority and things of that nature, because we got people who need their medicine and can't go to a dispensary. Veterans and people of that nature, they just are just not getting their fix where they need to get their fix when they come to this places like Sessions they can get their their medicine there it's one of the one of the big things that kind of grew me up or built me up when i realized that i can help people like that it's like shit my flower of our flower rackham's flower or or my hash and my rosin can help somebody mitigate their pain and their struggles with just a simple dab then i'm down for this let's do this so i kind of evolved on that tip a little bit one of the first sessions i think was Weed for Warriors uh, session I did in Oakland with my boy Waxy Gordon who put me on at the very beginning and all we did is just give out free dabs all day to veterans for a good six hours and nobody paid for anything nobody bought anything there was no selling or anything like that we were just giving veterans dabs and I thought that was amazing yeah, now definitely wasn't a sesh per se but uh, or uh, in the sense of like a farmer's market but it was a sesh, sesh as like a communal gathering we for Warriors is, like, I'm assuming, a nonprofit organization that helps uh, veterans and their cannabis needs. And I know a few of the bigger guys, but in general, the gist of their platform is pretty proper. Like, they're just here to support their fellow brothers. And I look at that as supporting their fellow human. And it was pretty cool to see, I think I had 68. 70-year-old dude come up to me, say he was like, he was a Cold War vet, all this stuff. Gave me his whole story, like just went on talking for about 20 <laughs> minutes or so before he did his dab. He did his dab, and then he went off to the dance floor. Had an amazing time the rest of the night. And there were a couple of, of old-timers that I gave dabs that ended up slouching over in their seat <laughs> right afterwards. But So you could tell who, who was definitely uh, had a high tolerance and who didn't. Right. But that was one of the first, uh, one of the very first sessions that I was experienced uh, or brought to, to experience. <laughs> and after that, 
and that was in Oakland, the Sacramento sessions were kind of like the, those times were those spots where that I got to figure out who my people were, like who fucked with me and who didn't, who knew what Rackham's was or didn't know and were intrigued. And this is also the same time as social media starting to come along with Instagram and all that bullshit. Yeah, which is interesting because there's like this weird dynamic where like, I feel like a lot of people that do know you know you for being candid with information, Mm -hmm. doing a lot of Instagram lives, doing a lot of pressing, doing a lot of sharing. But we talked about this and it's like, then some of the people that followed you in this digital sense could connect with you in person at these sessions. So it was like this interesting dynamic of they both influenced each other to some degree, it feels like. Definitely. Yeah, it definitely had a big part on that. The The fact that people were able to put a, a face to their name, essentially, um, which I definitely was not stoked about initially, but I knew I had to for obvious reasons. But just being able to connect with the people who were consuming and enjoying the product that I was putting out there was next level. I never had that feeling before. So, and people coming up to me saying that that they were able to get off certain medications because of my product. It's like, wow. I would have never thought that I could help somebody on that level. Right. Uh, veterans DM, DMing me left and right after once they kind of took my product home, did their thing, then used it the way that they needed to use it. And saying that, that it was a game changer for them was, was mind-boggling. And that just kind of made me so humbled and thankful for the shit that I was taught prior to this, you know? Yeah, it's a trip. Yeah, that's cool, man. So let's talk about pressing rosin. Mm-hmm. Because I like to talk to people about things that I feel are like their strong suits. And that's obviously something that you've been working on a lot the last couple of years, mechanical separation. And like I said earlier, or just a few minutes ago, you're known for like being real open with information. Mm-hmm. But now you're in a interesting situation where you also want to pursue consulting. Yep. And so how do you balance that? You know, it's a tough one. <laughs> It definitely is a tough one. I mean, when it comes down to it for the actual knowledge that I would like to share with people, it's a matter of like understanding that there's ways to go about this shit that you can learn on your own if you just take the initiative to do so and think about what we're actually doing here. This isn't rocket science. I mean, it's, and it's not even crazy ass chemistry. It is to a certain extent, but it's not something that, you know, you need a degree to learn it, learn about. And that being said, there are nuances and tips and tricks that people like myself and others learn over their period of time of gaining their knowledge that could be beneficial to others and also valuable to themselves that they would like to hold, hold close to their heart. So... Once again, where do you find that happy medium of what's going to benefit the consumer or the person that wants to gain that knowledge and you at the same time? 
That's, I think that's where the struggle lies with a lot of us and what we're trying to achieve here. Nobody wants to give out everything. Like open source uh, information is amazing, but it can only go so far as well. There's got to be a limit, I feel like. Otherwise, the lights won't stay on, you know? So, I mean, going back to the rosin in itself and hash, I think, I think there's a lot to be said when it comes to where the knowledge is going and how it's been spread. And the amount of information that can be obtained by someone that might not have the people around them to bounce their ideas off of. And that was me for quite some time. I mean, I was just here in my mudroom, literally not knowing what the fuck I was doing and, or who to ask. I was asking people that had no clue just as much as I did. So I had to do the research, <laughs> right. you know, they, I was definitely asking people that were probably going to send me in the wrong direction if they answered. Slowly that changed. I just started digging, started researching more, started Googling, started talking to more people, listening to more people. Listening is the big thing. It's one thing to ask questions all day long. You end up pissing people off if you do that to a certain extent. But like listening to what people have to say, whether it's a podcast like yours or Bubble Man's or, or anybody else's, like there's so much knowledge to gain from those type of podcasts to use in your everyday life, especially when it comes to hash. I think that's a big part of it is just listening to what people have to say about it. If you're really passionate about what you're doing, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. Like you said, it's a, it's a tricky balance between it seemed like when you were sharing, uh, doing these lives more commonly, it was also like you were kind of working out, figuring these things out as well. Yeah. And you were just like sharing it. Yeah. And now it's reached a different point where, yeah, I, I mean, you're, I've talked to a lot of different people and, and yeah, it's taken people a lot of work and time and effort and sacrifice to learn what they've learned. And so like just sharing it all is also not necessarily feasible. Yeah. You know, so it, it is an interesting point, but and what you can tell us about mechanical separation, walk us through the process because it's not really something I've talked to anybody about. I don't believe like to mm -hmm. this extent where, you know, I remember hearing from various people that when they first started pressing rosin, they'd get this like flaky material left over and they were like, oh, fat slip, it's something out the door. And that's actually now knowing that's likely mostly THCA. Yep. So walk us through how to separate rosin into THCA. Well, I did it last night, actually. <laughs> that um, This jar I just showed you, when I pressed this stuff uh, last night, I pressed 20 grams of this captain's cake, got 15 grams out of it, of rosin. When I pulled the pouch out of the parchment, there was that thin layer of white film. I also realized that I pressed it at about 180, 185 Fahrenheit for about three and a half, four minutes. A little longer than I normally do. Normally it's like a, for, an amount, for an amount that big or that small, I would only press it for about one and a half to two and a half minutes max. Okay. At that temperature. So and this went a little longer, you're saying? Yeah. I just wanted to, I wanted to get all the juice out that I could get out. I even did a second press just for the turp fraction. When I pulled the bag out, if I opened it up, sure enough, had that fucking 
filmy little sections on the bag itself that made me think of back in the day when I first came up on TUTA. It's like, there it is. So in a sense, that's what you're, you're kind of already doing it without realizing that you're doing it. So if anybody were to do that moving forward, if you press a, press a pouch of hash at a lower temperature, like 170s, 180s, for a long period of time, and when I say long period, I mean three, four plus minutes, anywhere between like an ounce of hash or less, that could potentially happen if you have a high percentage of THCA in your material. Um, if it's an early harvest, you might not have uh, that much THCA. If it's a later harvest, uh, you, you could, or you could have some of that already being converted to THC just through the degradation process. But And that's an important thing I feel to point out is that to do these processes of mechanically separating it, it needs to be in that THCA form versus the THC. Yeah. Yeah. Once you, once you already hit that THC section, it serves no purpose to try to mechanically separate that. It's, you're not going to get anything out of it. The acid is the solid form and that's what you're after. So that cannabinoid in particular. So essentially that rosin was, or this stuff was pretty much is high in, in a THCA percentage. Now, exactly how much, I don't know, because I haven't had it tested. But I'm assuming it's in the 70s, 80s. And you're gathering that from how the resin is reacting. Yeah, even just by its, by how it cured, left out. Like the fact that it looks like dried up cake batter, almost. That, to me, tells me that there's a higher percentage of THCA in there. And while we haven't talked about terpenes yet, but that's a totally different section of the mechanical separation. Right, and we talked about this kind of structure that's around this rosin that you just that we're talking about right now mm -hmm. it's almost like this little thin layer of something that holds it in and with that thca being so present it's almost like a, a small film that it creates around itself like a barrier or right like a, like a jelly bean cover coating right and then we saw other material I think it was maybe your Sunday driver mm -hmm. that had a much more like creamier texture yeah, to it. That's because I agitated it. And that is not necessarily something you would want to work with to try to separate. No, yes and no. I mean, definitely no, because it's just, it's a lot more harder to handle it physically during the packaging process. And when I say packaging process, I mean like, packing it into a bag or a screen, a five or 15 micron screen, and then folding that, that up properly to in turn put it in the parchment paper. Unless you're working in a really, really cold, cold room, that stuff's just gonna get all over your, your fingers, your gloves, dab tools, all that shit. So the consistency of the rosin is key, first and foremost. What that consistency is or should be should be a generally kind of a drier resin or rosin. That is just, it's just that much more easier to work with. And also that also gives you the indication of there being a higher percentage of THCA. So when you do get to the point of actually mechanically separating it, you know that you're going to have a good qualifier for this process. Right. And if you do the steps properly, you'll liquefy the terpene fraction and push that away and solidify the THCA into a solid and we have that remaining in the bag once you're done. Yeah. So basically you're taking 
your hash that you're washing, you're pressing that into rosin, and then that rosin, if the consistency is right, then gets, in essence, repressed. Yep. And so by doing that, you're able to remove the terpenes or extract them, I guess? Yeah, the terpene fraction. So the terpene fraction, there, there's pretty much two sections to this. You have your high terpene fraction and your high, your high cannabinoid fraction, which is your THCA. Your terpenes might also have the fats and lipids or waxes and whatnot all in that as well. That gets ex- excreted or melted down in, into a liquid and pushed on, along with the terpenes. I hope I'm explaining that right. I know Tony Bazur can explain that a little bit more in depth, but nonetheless, for my non-scientifical mind, that's what's happening. So you take that that rosin, it, you can even do it with the creamier rosin. It's just it's just going to be a pain in the ass to get it to work with you right, unless you're in a cold room. And you don't really want to be in a cold room while you're doing the separation, too. You want to be in a warmer room. Or it's a kind of double-edged sword. Yeah. Like most people think you need to be in a cold room when you're, when you're washing and pressing and whatnot, and that might be the case. But when you're doing THCA separation, you actually want the temperature to be higher than normal to the point where, like, it's maybe 75-ish or even 80 degrees in your, in your room, or at least wherever you're pressing at. That being is because you want those terpenes to not cool down quickly coming off of the press. You want them to continue to ooze out and push away from that THCA because now it's a matter of that separation is the key word, trying to push those two things apart. Right. And if it's cold in your environment, but hot on the press, as soon as that, that, those terpenes get out of that press, all they want to do is get cold and stop. So you, have, you end up having a problem with that. So another little pro tip is to make sure that you your environment is fairly warmer when you're trying to do the mechanical separation. But up until that point, the prep of the whole process, you definitely want it colder. <laughs> right. So like working in a freezer, for instance, like I work in my chest freezer, I'll, I'll keep my, my slabs of, of rosin either in my turp cooler or in a freezer, and I'll actually fold them and, and like wrap them like a present, so to speak. Okay on the in the freezer well it's cold because it keeps the rosin from wanting to get creamy or gooey or sticky right it's more malleable so i'll I'll do everything in the freezer and then take it out and sit it on my table and let it get to room temp and just let it do its thing kind of relax in this Mm -hmm. and it's already ready to go prepped essentially prep is key for any of this shit you know without that we we're just wasting our time so prepping it is the, is the first and foremost. You want to make sure that the rosin is going to be the right consistency, which is what we've pretty much already talked about. It's going, the drier the rosin, the better in this instance, because you know you're going to have a higher percentage of TUCA if that's what you're after. You can mechanically separate a more stickier or gummier rosin, so to speak, if you want to. It's just a little harder. There's, there's a few more things to mitigate when you're dealing with that. You might have to press a little bit at a lower temperature for a longer period of time versus if you have a drier rosin puck, you can kind of bump those temperatures up and maybe speed up the process a little bit more. I tend to notice a difference with the hash rosin and live rosin too. Live rosin team tends to, if it's high in THCA, will kick off a lot quicker than hash rosin. 
Other than that. Like by kickoff, you mean what? Curing. When I, when I say kickoff, it's like it's curing or like, um, for example, you take like a boat and you're doing a uh, fiberglass work and the, the actual stuff that you're putting on there, liquid, it's like a hardener and it kicks off. And when it, there's a chemical reaction that happens and that, that's called a kickoff. So it's starting to, ch- to change its, its actual like metabolic structure, I guess, or whatever. It goes from a, a, a liquid to a solid. And that's kind of the same thing that's happening with, with the THCA, as, at least with the terpenes. It's going from a solid to a liquid. And then with the THCA, it's going from a, more or less a liquid to a solid, in a sense. Some people say nucleating. Yeah, or, yeah nu- nucleation, is, I guess, is the, the scientific word for that. Yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah, nucleation. That's what's happening when it's transforming. It's when it's curing or kicking off. <laughs> so one thing I wanted to touch on is when you're pressing to separate mm-hmm. THCA from terpenes and other things, that is at a higher temperature than you would press the rosin out of your hash, correct? Um, not initially. Eventually, yes. So say, for example, I have 20 grams of any rosin that cured, kicked off, or nucleated properly. That I like it just is in a nice, nice little rectangle patty. I take that, I'll wrap it in a five micron mesh or 15 micron if you can't get five micron. Rosin Evolution, shout out to him. He's the one that's got all those nylons for, for everybody. And you told me just to, we talked about this privately earlier, but you said the smaller the micron, the more easily it seems to. Yes. These the terpenes? Yeah, so I use typically, at first I was using 25 micron. I noticed that if my rosin was a little bit more wetter or creamier than drier, it would tend to get pushed through those micron screens a lot quicker or faster than I would like it to. And I was like, okay, I need this shit to stay here as long as possible until it solidifies. Because I know there's THCA here. I just need to get needed to bind together. It's like, well, what if I go down in micron size that'll kind of restrict it a little bit and hold back that THCA? So that's what I did. Reached out to Dave at Rosin Evolution. He gave me, sent me some 15 micron, tried that. Worked out even better. I was like, all right, well, let's go for the five. So the smaller the smaller the micron number, the smaller the holes. It's not like LPI is line per square inch. It's the opposite. So now I'll use either 15 or five micron and I'll wrap the, the rosin with that. And the idea behind that is that those holes will allow the terpene fraction to liquefy at a certain temperature and get oozed out, so to speak, and while still maintaining the THEA structure and that allow that to solidify into a hard, into a solid. And that's kind of like a, like a barrier, I guess you could say. Right. And that's, and that's pretty much the basic fundamentals of mechanical separation. You're... Where, where, what I'm, but what I'm doing with the temperatures in regards to temperature and pressure, if I press a, a slab of 20 grams of rosin at or hash at 175 degrees Fahrenheit, I'm not gonna. I, I could potentially start at that point to repress the rosin into THCA, but typically what I like to do is depending on how much of a terp, terp percentage there is in there, which you can tell by the consistency of the rosin. If it's a little bit more wetter, might have a higher percentage of terpenes, physical terpene content, 
content, not just like the aroma that everybody speaks of, but like the actual oil, terpene oil. So if there, if it's higher in that, I might set my temperature a lot lower, like at around 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And I'll do 100 degrees Fahrenheit for 20, 30, not 20, 30, 45 minutes up to an hour, sometimes an hour and a half when I first started out because I didn't, I was still R&D in, in this situation. I didn't know what, like, I was just basing my knowledge off of what I heard online and ran with it. So I took those temps and it ended up working out. I, I think my first, one of my first patties was about 15 grams, 20 grams. And I pressed that at like 105 degrees for 90 minutes. Not much, not too much pressure, just enough to kind of bring down the top plate to the bottom plate and squeeze the pouch enough so it's snug. At that point in time, I realized what I now call is uh, the next phase, which is the sweat phase. So you're sweating that pouch of rosin. And what I mean by sweating is you're liquefying the terpenes. You're slowly but surely liquefying the terpenes enough to where they can turn into a a very thin liquid and start oozing out of the bag. And it looks like the bag's sweating. That's why I call it the sweat phase. So at that point, you know you're on the right track if that starts to happen. Since then, I've told a lot of people about those first initial steps and they've taken it upon themselves to realize that you don't need to start that low all the time. And which is what I, what I wanted. I wanted to give people this information so they can take it upon themselves to run with that and see if that works for them or if they can alter it and make it better and then come back, which they have. So now people are, including myself, are pressing around 120, 135, somewhere in that ballpark range, right off the bat. No need to press so low anymore. Unless you have a rosin that's really, really creamy, but you want to try to see if you can get some THCA out of it anyways. That's a totally different situation. But... If you if your if your rosin is the right consistency, then now you can start at a higher, a slightly higher temperature. So, on average, right now as we speak, I'll start at about one twenty to one thirty Fahrenheit. Doesn't matter how much you have, whether it's ten grams, thirty grams, fifty grams, or hundred grams. That temperature is a decent amount of temperature to get that rosin to kick off properly and start the process. Start liquefying the terpenes and start turning the A into solid. And at that point, it's just kind of a waiting game. Once you start to see the, the THCA or the terpenes rather start to ooze out and sweat, then you know you can start adding a little bit more pressure. Hopefully that'll be in a fairly quick time depending on how much pressure you added initially. Like I said, you don't want to just hammer it down. You want to kind of bring that plate, those plates together where it just holds it snug and starts the process. And this is where patience comes in too. You know, if you don't have any patience and you just forget everything I'm saying right now, because <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna need to have patience for this shit, especially if you're just beginning. You know, a lot of people, I think Covert Extracts was able to figure his his tech out and to a point where he was like getting the mechanical separation done in like 45 minutes to an hour and a half for a decent amount of rosin into THCA. While I'm still sitting here with an ounce of rosin in, in the fucking press for six hours. I didn't realize that I can kind of take some of those steps out and, and bring it and shorten it down until, you know, not too, not too much later down the road. Yeah, I think that's where I'm at with that. Like as far as temperatures or whatnot, starting off, it's okay to be in that mid-120, 130 range now. Initially, everybody thought that you need to start like 90 degrees or 100 degrees 
you don't really need to do that. Especially with nowadays uh, genetics that we're getting, they're really high in THCA, really high. Just the way that the, the genetics are being bred nowadays. Everybody wants the high THC percentage. When you get THC from THCA, now we're dealing with these, these genetics that across the board are going to always have that higher percentage. So this THCA mechanical separation process might actually start to become more popular because of that knowing that majority of the strains will, will be able to do it regardless. Right, they're just a good fit for the mm -hmm. process. Yeah. So let's talk about crystals a little because that's kind of another part of the process is this reintroduction. And, you know, I think it was maybe your Sunday driver or the pussy print that was, you said the actual THCA came from a separate cultivar yeah. that you decided that the terpenes weren't super favorable so you're like okay well let me use the thca of that and combine it with the terpenes from this so talk to us a little bit about how that works yeah it's like a, almost like a blend when you're doing the, a blend in the wash like a lot of a lot of the, the brands and makers are doing now you take two different blends and blend them together to make something different in a sense that's kind of what i'm doing but at the same time majority of us who press rosin don't always have all the microns that are viable for giving to other people, you know, to sharing with other people, with the masses. You might have that 45 micron or 25 even, or a 150 or 160 or 180 that just came out green, smelt very wet, grassy or planty, or just like didn't smell at all. Who knows? Just not a viable product that you can put your name behind whether for whatever the reason may be there's still an avenue to go down when it comes to separating that and making it into a viable product that you can then ingest and not have to worry about all the nasty smells or whatnot. So taking a rosin like that, like I have my star microns, the 70, 90, 120, so on and so forth. Those are your, your premier premium product, right? And you got your 45s or whatnot and your 160s and whatnot. Well, I keep everything, I pull everything separately and I press everything separately. So in turn, I can go back, and if everything's viable, I mix them all together, and I now have my full spec. If that doesn't happen, I still have these 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 end products that I can't do anything with. I mean, yeah, I could put them in edibles, cool, but Rackham's isn't an edible company. I don't have an edible. I don't have a chef. Well, I technically do, but now he's a hash maker, so. That's going to be the trend. <laughs> so, so like now he like now I just I don't know what to do with this rosin. Now, if you're in that same mindset, if you maybe even just have a rosin that a product that you have that you made that ended up not being the best that you would like to show somebody, what else can I do with this? Is what I ask myself. Well, I'll go and put that into, into the mechanical separation process and pull those terps out. It's a pretty straightforward process and it does what you want it to do. You don't want that bad stuff in, so let's remove it. Now you, now you end up with the part that actually gets you medicated AKA high left over. Now you, now there's something, now you have something viable and valuable to either you or another consumer. So it's hard to say if this is the end of the road for rosin It's like, is this the, the last thing you could really do to it? I don't think it is, but it feels like it in a sense, but at least that gives people the option, whether they're consuming or producing this product to do what they want with it. That's kind of one of the cool things that I've seen as of recently, or I figured out as of recently, like, all right, well, 
let me take this grease monkey, like I mentioned to you earlier, these grease monkey rosin that was 45 and 160 combined. The star microns were on point, smelt just like the grease monkey flower, beautiful. 45 was like maybe, the 45U was maybe, a, had a hint of the, the wet grassy turp profile. And then the 160 was just like, no question. It was, it was not, I wasn't going to put it with anything. So I put those together. And also the color variations of those, even though I hate to talk about color with rosin, but the, the color variation of those didn't match up. I didn't want it to affect my star microns as well. So that's another reason why I kept them off to the side. But they cured up properly enough to, to mechanically separate. It's like, all right, well, I don't like these terps, but I know I can get some THCA out of them. Let's mechanically separate them. And that's what I did. And I've done that multiple times with a lot of my diamond products that I've made, the rosin diamonds. Majority of my rosin diamonds, they all just get mixed together, strain after strain, because technically it doesn't matter what strain they are because there's no terpenes. Should be no terpenes mixed in with them. So that's a question that I have for you is that THCA do you feel like there's something left in there? Like, do they have color tinges to yes, them? Or? absolutely. So when I say that there shouldn't be any terpenes left in left in there, there still is. I mean, we're not doing this to 100% completion. That's for sure. Like, there's always a residual or left behind, something left behind. So, and that's showing in the diamonds based off the color of the diamonds. It's very far and few between. You'll very rarely be able to get a truly clear or even opaque clear diamond in regards or crystal in, in regards to THCA after it's been melted. It's always going to have some type of color in it. And that's just the residual terpenes, but it's not enough to either smell or taste. Most often when you dab a diamond or, or a rosin crystal, it's it doesn't really have, there's a distinct taste that it has, THCA has, but it's almost more like a, like a texture or feel. When I dab a diamond just raw by itself, I get like a weird film over my teeth and lips. Interesting. After I blow it out, I don't like it, but it's interesting. What and about the like effect of it? The effect is like, I mean, it's, I guess it depends on the person, to be honest with you, but it's more of like a full body smack to the face type of like it's cerebral to your feet, depending on how hot you dab it, of course. If you go in too hot with the rosin diamond, you can <laughs> you can send yourself for a loop real quick because it's its concentration is even just that much more. If your rosin has... 65, 70% THCA. Well, what do you think those diamonds have after you just took all that out and concentrated into itself? I mean, that's sure that's got to be into the 85, 90s. So if you're hitting damn near pure THCA and a decent sized dab of that, you're going to be in for a long haul. <laughs> if, uh, <laughs> if you don't already have that tolerance built up, you know. So this is something that I remember from uh, tuning into your lives is how you go from pressing that THCA into actually turning them into a shape. So like the, the actual crystals? Yeah. So so like the finished form, I guess? Yeah, like I've seen that it's like a, a light heating process almost. Mm -hmm. And then in essence, you're almost like forming it once it hardens, mm -hmm. which creates yeah, the, a little almost like crystal bar, which you can just break up. Yeah, like the Hogwarts sticks is what we commonly <laughs> joked about it. Um, I wish I had some to show you, but they're all grammed up now. But yeah, I mean, essentially you have, once you do the separation and that process is final, and I know we're skipping over steps here, essentially with like timeframes and people seem 
want to ask, like, do you take the pouch, you take the packet out ever and put it back in? Do you rewrap it? No. I keep it in one single 15 micron wrap the whole entire time until the process is done. All we're doing is incrementally stepping up the temperature and the pressure. Uh, those two things are key. Whether it's like every 15 minutes, 25 minutes, 30 minutes, doesn't matter. Just as long as that's getting done. And going back to the temperature real quick, the fact that you start so low. What I tend to like to do is I like to start under my original temp that I press the hash at. Right. So, so let's I'm, say you did 175, anything below 175. Yeah, I'll start at like 130 or so. And then, or 120, work up to that 175, 180 point. And then once I hit that point, I, I technically, well, I, actually, I will take the bag out, but I won't rewrap it. I'll just, I'll rewrap it with parchment. I'll keep the, the micron bag still as is because it's still doing something. But I'll put a fresh piece of parchment down, collect the, the terpene fraction off of that parchment, and then set that aside. Those are my viable terpenes if they are viable, meaning they smell good. They taste good, all that. Anything else that I extract after that point, that top temperature is met, that 175, 180, I kind of disregard and just consider a loss. Hopefully you pulled out that full, uh, all of those terpenes in the first fraction and you don't have anything else to process after that. Now it's just a cleanup process. But if you do, that goes back to the terpene loss. Like I, in my opinion, that anything that you you gain from those terpene, that terpene fraction, after you hit that mark of where you press the hash, hash originally, is not worth it. This is with dried material, dried hash rosin, not live rosin. Live rosin, you have a little bit more leeway with it because you have more, even more terpenes to work with. So you might be able to do a second press, quote unquote, and still get a little bit of those terpenes off and still keep them because they might be still valuable are viable then you have the cleanup process which is your kind of like your second or third stage depending on how quick you were able to achieve it and the cleanup process is pretty straightforward it's just now that the terpenes are gone majority of them your main focus is now getting that thca as bright white as you can as like brighter than sheetrock type because it's going to look like sheetrock when you pull that shit out of the press and you let it cool down for a little bit on your stainless steel table or in your cold room or whatever, and you're going to peel that, that mesh back, it literally looks like just like a big chunk or however big your press is, just a chunk of sheetrock. It sounds like it. It feels like it. It's hard as, hard as a rock. The idea is to get that as clean as possible. And when I say clean as possible, it's just the residual terpenes that are still left in that, that the THCA is still kind of holding back and absorbing because of the heat. So... I have another little trick that I, where I use um, coffee filters, unbleached coffee filters. Those, in a sense, are like a wicking agent, just like we, we would use cardboard back in the day to dry hash. It, the hash was like a wicking agent. So these un, unbleached coffee filters are what I use, and I'll literally take one of these, one or two of them even, put my pouch on top of it and wrap it like a Christmas present, and then do another thing, do another one on the opposite side. So kind of the, the folds and everything are kind of opposite from each other. Yeah, so basically you're taking the pouch, you're folding it in the coffee filter, mm -hmm. and then you're taking that fold and putting it within another coffee filter yep. with other folds on top of it. Yep, and this is one thing I don't really tell too many people about because it's just kind of something I saw work for me, but I'll do it twice for the initial press. And this is now our cleanup phase. So I have 
the THCA wrapped in mesh, wrapped in a coffee filter, wrapped in another coffee filter. And at this point, you're not worried about terpenes or like contamination, like the fibers, because there's nothing there to collect. Now it's just a matter of getting these coffee filters as wet as possible because that's your remaining residual terpenes that you want to get rid of and away from. Yeah, it's like a final soak yep. per se. So then this is, at this point in time, your temperature should be up around the two, 200-ish degree temperature. So where you're not necessarily melting the THCA, but you're keeping it hot enough to keep the terpenes that are still there liquefied and absorbed by this dry piece of paper. Right. I mean, you can use a paper towel if you want. Something that just will pull moisture towards it. Yeah. Like you said uh, about the cardboard, like, in mm-hmm. theory, wait. Yeah. Or wicks. You yeah, know. you you as it's just like when you sieve hash, wet hash onto a piece of cardboard. Hopefully, you have parchment. Yes, which I've it. heard is not suggestible. But that's just <laughs> <laughs> you definitely want to have parchment on top of your cardboard. Parchment is water can go through it, so moisture can go through it. Don't think otherwise. But uh, that cardboard acts as a wicking agent; just wants to pull that moisture in and suck it in and away from the hash. Right. Same concept with this uh, with this coffee filter. So around 200, 210, sometimes 220, depending on your amount of THA you have, you wrap the coffee filter with that shit and you slam the hammer down. Now pressure doesn't really become an issue. Pressure's like non-existent now. You just want to have an, enough of it. So if you have a press that's like 20 tons, 30 tons, that's good. Um, I don't ever really get up to 10, 15 tons, but I get close to it. So you'll just increase the pressure real quick at that hotter temperature and you set a timer for like five, 10 minutes. There's no science behind it. I don't have an exact number. I just know it works good for me. And for me, I do, if I still have a lot of color in that THDA patty, I'll do like three to five, 10 minute presses. And after the first 10 minutes, I take it out and I look at the coffee filter and see how wet it is. And you can just hold it up to the light and you'll obviously it'll look wet. Is it like oily? Yeah, oily. It'll just it'll look like it like yeah. It'll literally look like it's like something was spilled on it, so to speak. So the goal is to get to have that every time you pull it out, get drier and drier and drier. So the first one will be probably pretty soaked. The two wraps, I'll take that out and I'll do another double wrap, put that in for another ten minutes, rinse and repeat until I start to see it kind of getting drier on the first wrap, and then I know I can stop using this the second wrap. So then I'll go to the first one or just a single wrap and I'll do like five, 10 minutes somewhere around that ballpark and just keep going, add pressure, set my alarm and do what I'm doing. Come back to it, check it. And if I'm three presses in or six presses in, doesn't matter. An hour later, five, 10 minutes, as long as it's done and this comes out pretty much like 90, 95% dry, I know I'm good to go. But then I know I have the purest THCA that I can produce. Some people want some color in them, which is okay. Some people might want a little bit of terpenes, still residual terpenes left in there. Nothing wrong with that, but they need to know that if they don't store those THCA diamonds properly after they've melted that THCA into crystal form, which we'll get get into, they don't store it in like a freezer or a cooler or whatever, they will change colors and they will darken over time. That's degradation. It's the terpenes just changing. Um, also the THCA converting as well into THC because there is a decarb that happens. There's not much of a decarb, but it still happens. So, And we talked about the possibility, I was asking you, like if you thought 
some of the THC that tends to be pretty low versus like the THCA might be also coming out with some of those terpenes, like it being present mm-hmm. in your terpene fractions that mm-hmm. you talked about earlier. So I thought that was pretty interesting. The terpene fraction will always have a little bit of that THCA in it. Or even the THC, not yeah. even the THCA. Yeah, because you're because that's another thing too is is what you'll see with the melting factor of it. So after all that shit's said and done, and you have your patty, your white chalky patty, not powder, but solid. That's that needs to be broken down into a powder to then be reliquified. So it's kind of like going. It's just a fucking ping pong game going back and forth it's definitely a process and like i could see why you're saying people would need patience yeah you (laughs) this whole thing is patience it doesn't just happen like that like within a two and a half minute press this is sometimes hours sometimes all day depending on how much you're pressing but once you have that final thea cannabinoid high cannabinoid product in your hands and you can feel it and touch it it's a solid now you need to figure out how to turn that into a crystal form and this is where the, the druggier side of the thing come into play, <laughs> for lack of better words. You know, because I mean, at the same time, like the first time I did this, I definitely felt like, what am I doing? Like I'm, I'm melting this white powder on a hot plate and it looks like I'm doing something way worse than I really am. <laughs> right. And I don't know how I feel about this, but then I realized I have to tell myself it's just weed, dude, just weed. So I take that. THCA and break it down to a powder, whether it's like you use a mortar and pedestal, pestle, you grind that shit up, you do it that way, or you can just break it up with your hand. You know, however, the stuff's pretty hard when it gets cold. It's pretty brittle and like just tough to work with. And the purpose of breaking it down to, to a fine powder or even just really, really small chunks is so when you're ready to heat it back up into a liquid, it does it in a really quick amount of time. Okay. If you just sit the patty back on there, it, it takes so long for that patty to liquefy and melt that you could end up having more decarb than you would want. Because with my process, there's a few different ways to skin this cat in regards to like Mendo Budsmith, shout out to him, to Covert Extract, shout out to him. And I'm not even sure about Simpson or Dogman Troop, how they do their diamonds as far as the melting side of it. But I know some of them use the press and put their THCA into a pouch put their press up to a high, a really high temperature and then ooze out the A in that, in those regards. I don't do that. I have like a, a hot plate. If you want to be technical, a tortilla press. <laughs> and very technical. Very many, I'm sure some people have seen me use it on my live and, and in person at, at classes and whatnot. The tortilla press is perfect because it's got a like kind of like a non-stick kind of smooth surface to work with that can control its temperature. So just a hot plate in general. You want a smooth, hot surface that you can dial in perfect. And you bump that up to somewhere between 250 to 350. I'll say that because I want people to try to figure out themselves to figure out where their sweet spot is. I'm not going to give specifics in that regard. But somewhere around there, the melting point of THCA, if I'm not mistaken, is like, I think, between 280 and 370 Fahrenheit, 360 Fahrenheit. I mean, don't quote me on that. And for everybody who knows that exact number, probably get pissed at me if I'm not right, but whatever. The melting fat point is not around that range. So my idea to get this into a liquid is to just do it as quick as possible without 
having to worry about too much decarbing from THCA into THC. Because then at that point, the only thing, the only way it's going, diamond's going to get you high is if you eat it, which probably is, could be something new that I just discovered right now as I speak. Brackham's edibles, dude, little diamond chunks, <laughs> <laughs> or even putting a diamond in like a capsule. Yeah, you know, that would look bad. That would, that would look bad. Never mind. Forget I said that. But it, <laughs> but you take that powder and you like you put it on, on a piece of parchment on the hot plate at that te- at those temperatures. And you just let it do its thing. Let it kick off once again. Now you're going from a solid back into a liquid. And once you do that, you need to figure out your way to kind of not agitate it, but just mix it and combine it thoroughly enough to then take it off and let it cool. And most people who have tried this will realize that it kind of cools into like, a, you ever had rock candy? Mm-hmm. It, it almost like, if it clumps up into something like that, it kind of looks like it feels like that. It shatters even worse than actual shatter. It can get like real clingy. Static electricity is your worst friend to have when you're trying to mess with a crystal version of THCA. But that's what you end up having. Now you end up with like a liquid puddle of THCA that will very quickly, depending on your environmental temperature, harden. And you're pretty much done at that point. Right. As far as the processing portion of it. Now it's just up to you to decide whether you want to reintroduce the terpenes that you just separated from that or introduce new terpenes like we discussed just a little while ago as far as like what I did with my pussy print diamonds or my Sunday gyro diamonds. The diamonds themselves were made from grease monkey diamonds. The terpene fraction, since the grease monkey diamonds terpenes weren't viable, were made from other rosins that I liquefied into an oil. It was just like a normal rosin batter, butter, caked up rosin that I liquefied at a low temperature for a fairly decent amount of time until it turned in, turned into a sap. And then I was able to introduce that sappy consistency rosin with the diamonds that I made and in turn make a, a new formation of it, I guess. Yeah, it's cool, man. I think it's cool that you... I mean, not only you, but like uh, this group of people within the community has kind of pushed the boundaries on mechanical separation. And it's a different type of process, I feel like, Mm -hmm. you know, like a very long and kind of gradual step by step process where you have to keep doing things to then recombine them if you want. Yeah. I mean, it's. And people ask ask this shit all day long, like, well, what's the point? Like, well, it's fun. For one, to me, it's fun. I, Even though I'm not a scientist, I enjoy science and I'm a fucking nerd in that aspect. And I'm curious on how these reactions are taking place and what's going on. But on top of that, this also gives the end user an option of how much they actually want to dose themselves with as they see fit. You know, you take a gra- or just a quarter gram dab that's what you're taking. You get, you, it's either all or nothing when you hit that dab. With the THEA diamonds, you can take a little bit of the diamond and maybe a lot of the turfs or vice versa. You can kind of, you can you can set your dosage a lot better. Once Mix you, and match. Yeah, you can figure out what, what you want to work with. And on top of that, with the makers, now this gives us once again an opportunity to maybe mix two different terpenes that normally wouldn't be together together and make a different blend. Uh, like Just like you do in the wash. 
I don't see a lot of, I, I haven't seen a lot of people do that. Like I could have easily have taken the pussy print terpenes and mixed them with the Sunday driver terpenes, came up with something co- completely totally different. I didn't think about that until now. Or like a GMO or something mixed with the, with the print, which is kind of known for its Jackie J1 aroma. With diamonds from something else. Yeah. Because di- at the end of the day, the diamonds don't matter where they came from. THCA is THCA is THCA. It's just, it depend- depending on how much residual terpenes in there, is that, that will depend on how they act with the terpenes that you're mixing them with in general. And you did, we, we talked about this a little earlier, is that you do feel that every time it's getting exposed to heat, every time you are pressing, it is degrading. It is converting, yeah. It is decarbing and degrading to a certain extent. But not enough to, I think, make anybody notice, make anything noticeably different, unless you're testing it. What about in the smokable form? Uh, I haven't tried a lot of diamonds and stuff, to be honest with you. Is it any kind of more, you used the word caustic earlier, is it any more caustic than taking like a dab of rosin? No, I mean, the... Not unless you get a heavy ratio of terpene fraction on it, I would say. Especially if it's live rosin that was made into the diamonds. But everybody that I've come in contact with, whether it's Caitlin here or any any other person, it's very far and few between that I get a reaction of it being too harsh or hard on their throat or their mouth or their head. It's usually the same reaction over every time. Is it's, it's like a it's pretty smooth hit when you dab a diamond. Um, the raw diamonds are a different story because when you dab, dab a raw diamond, if you don't get that temperature on point, you will get that. <laughs> yeah, like you said earlier, that filmy. Yeah, and it's, I've, people have seen it with the BHO shit too. When they smoke BHO, you get like a weird film sometimes. It's happened to me, it's happened to Kaylin. It's just it's something that happens. And I, I've, when I found that out because of the BHO guys, that that's what my THCA was doing. I was like, I thought I did something wrong. I thought it was like a bad reaction. I was like, holy shit, what did I do? Like, people are smoking these. I had, like, do I have stuff on my teeth? What's going on? Like, what is this? To kind of find out, it's just the way that THCA reacts when it's, you know, combusted. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Well, cool, man. I think this is a good chance for a second smoke break. Sounds good. I'd like to take another moment to thank every person that has contributed to the podcast in any way, especially all current community members on Patreon for allowing us to continue to produce episodes, including episode 35 with Rackham's and to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including Sandman Hashstar, the Jones Simulation in Massachusetts, David, the Hash Aficionado in Canada, Lifted in Dina 2 in Pasadena, the Chile Relleno Burrito in Trinidad, Garland in D.C., MTS Farms, Good Vibes Hash in Oregon, our good friend Gendo420, Meltwalkie Jeff, Hiker Trash Cannabis in Maine, The Chronic Killer in South Carolina, The Hash Hive, Mario and Jonah in Illinois, The Real Cannabis Chris, Nick the Intern in Michigan, The Homies from Mission Hill Melts, The Crew at Heritage Hash Co. Mendocino, David of Rosin Evolution, Gastown Fire and their Green Cedar Retreat in Tofino, Canada, The Boys on the Big Island, Pressing Fauchot and Macro Melt, formerly known as Hash and Hedies in SoCal. I appreciate each and every one of you. Now back to the episode. So this is something that you've spoken to me about and I've heard you speak about before somewhere else. Uh, and this is your connection through Hash 
kind of indirectly through your wife. So tell me how that came about. Well, more or less, it came from her father. Her father was a pirate, for lack of better words. I mean, he was, he was a father, and he was an interesting person, man of many faces and names, grew up in the 60s, 70s, and more or less sailed around the world uh, to a certain extent at the later period of his life, moving some hashish and Thai stick. I didn't know about this prior to meeting my wife. And I actually found out about it when she had to tell me that she needed a ride to the airport to go and visit her father, who was in Indonesian prison for the last, at that point, like 15 years. Um, due to numerous reasons, but the majority of them being because of hashish and Thai stick. That's where... Even though I knew about hash, traditional hash, prior to that, I didn't really have it hit close to home how much that affected people's lives as far as that substance was concerned or that medicine or whatever you want to call it. So that's pretty much what was my very initial introduction to hashish. It was indirectly through him. We were just speaking with your wife and she was saying that it's a kind of conflicting feeling between having those circumstances affect her father that way and then having now her husband <laughs> making hash. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it was a, a clusterfuck for her. <laughs> Just kind of being enveloped in that life from the very beginning and not the type of hash that we think of today. Not this new school white beach sand type hash, like original old school OG Thai stick hashish and things of that nature. Like, and just being involved in that type of lifestyle in general. And then me coming around, talking this whole, you know, dirty hands, clean money vibe, this and that. Not really having much experience within cannabis or anything of that sort till meeting her. Now, understanding her, her past life and her father's history to being introduced from one of her friends about or of rosin and concentrates of that nature. I definitely don't think she expected me to take such a left turn from my life before her and want to just go full throttle with this life. But in a sense with me in my personal life and growing and growth, I felt like it was a necessary and needed change and a positive one that could benefit me and others if I did it the right way and seeing what her father did yes he ran drugs if you want to call it that but you know carrying on this tradition of hashish and, and things of that nature is something that I kind of took and ran with and just in a different way and that's kind of why I do this as an ode to him and the people during his time and before my time and before him um, it's just something that uh, was a tradition in a sense. And now we're just trying to do it in a new school version of that tradition. It's the same shit when it comes down to the, the essence of it. But it's exciting. And uh, just like we were talking about earlier, it's exciting. It's a rush to do this. I, I get a totally different vibe off of processing beautiful cannabis into a hash. And then even extending that further into rosin and diamonds. It's a passion that I never knew I had. Um accumulated for so much more outside of our cannabis 
community. Um, her and her father were a big part of that, still is to this day. I mean, the name Rackham's, he's got a patch over his eye. Rackham's is a captain, an old 14th century captain, pirate in the Caribbean. And he was one of the first male captains to allow female pirates on his ship. Bonnie Rotten, I believe, was his wife's name. And she was one of the very first female pirates in, in written down history. But Rackham's is also my dog. And, you know, <laughs> it's, um, it's, you see some of my stickers, it's kind of nautical themed. That's to the, the saline around the world aspect of it, pirate aspect of it, which is, you know, to her father. And also a big portion of our life, too, you know, aside from music and us being DJs and also growers and farmers and, you know, hashish unveilers. We also are sailors at heart too. And that spawns from her father as well. Yeah, man, that's an interesting story and correlation. And I know she was telling us a little more details about it. And it definitely sounds pretty wild, you know, and uh, (laughs) it's a movie for sure. And outside of that, that's a yeah, that's a tough penalty, man. You know, spending almost twenty years in a prison for yeah, in a Muslim prison at that. Like that's what a lot of people don't understand. Just to kind of like scan briefly on on it, like her father. The reason that I do this, one of the reasons I do this, is was in an Indonesian prison for eighteen plus years, and was scheduled to be released about two or three years ago, and got ill and passed away in that prison a month before he was supposed to be released. So I never got to meet the man. Just heard stories, war stories, you know, movie, crazy five-star reviewed movie type stories. Shit you just think about in blockbuster films. And I got to think, I actually got to talk to him once via phone because he was actually allowed to have a phone, but he had to keep it like tucked away underneath his pillow or whatnot or, or hidden, but he could use it. And my wife would actually pay for the time to be on it. But yeah, he, he ended up passing away and out there and skipped over a good almost two decades of my wife's life, which he could have been involved with, but he decided to choose that life. And he rode with the punches and got dealt a bad hand. And unfortunately, if he would have, if he would have been busted up out here, it might've been a different story, you know, that's, based off of regulations and laws that have been changing, especially in California, which is where they're from. I mean, who knows? He might still be with us and still have them have better health care or whatnot. There was nothing she could have done out there to help him, aside from giving the guards money to make sure that he was eating and drinking. You know? Right. That's, I just can't fathom that. Like, this isn't a prison that you think of in our, in our society. Pretty much what we say is about six prisons on this island, a prison island with like three or four of them operational and that's it. No residents aside from prisoners and guards. Even the guards didn't stay there. They could travel back and forth to boat. It's not a place you want to spend the rest of your dying days. Like I can't imagine what he went through those last few days. Like he, he was almost home and had the option to be with his family and couldn't. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's tough, man. That's intense. But that's why I do what I do. Because if it's not, you know, and that's also another reason why I, I voted yes on 64, as much as people might disagree with me on that. I didn't vote yes because of all the bullshit we're dealing with now. I vote yes because of those people that are in prison for dumb shit like him. Those are the people who needed our help by voting yes. And 
on one hand, I regret my decision to do that because it's put a lot of us that are want to get into the legal market uh, on the back burners to people who have money and capabilities of doing so. The ones that want to do it for the right reason at that too. But also like the fact that so many people have now been able to be released on such petty charges as like hashish or a fucking joint or something minuscule, an ounce of weed, which we're now legal to carry in the state of California. It's like, you go to your state, Texas, you're fucked. It's, yeah. it's just not right. And it's, it's, it's not enough. Enough has been changed to make a difference, but not enough has been changed to make a real difference. So there's people like that. And like, this is just talking about the United States, like in Indonesia or another country that's similar to them. Things like this will never see the light of day to people who get popped out there for a plant, whether it's they're moving around kilos or they're just trying to use it as a legit medicine. I mean, this shit is a medicine at the end of the day. Whether you're using it recreational or not, you're doing it for a reason. You're doing it because you want to feel a different way. And whether you think that's medicinal or not is up to you, not anybody else. So, Yeah, I agree with that, man. Yeah. So one of the interesting things about you mentioning the rec market is, I believe you told me you were in dispensaries before Prop 64 actually hit. So you, you got into stores through Prop 215? Yeah, pretty quick, actually. And I mean, that's because I, I knew people that happened to be in the music scene in Sacramento area that were in the same style of music that I was into, drum and bass music, uh, jungle music. And that happened to just convert, that were into cannabis and went into the cannabis industry. So they got jobs as buyers or bud tenders. And as we kind of connected the two through like six degrees of separation, initially within like the first year of Rackham's kind of off and popping, I was able to get some labeling done that was that was representative of what I wanted. And they didn't have that many regulations for what people could bring in because initially before Prop 64, you can just bring in pounds of weed. I don't even think you needed to test it. Maybe at most, like just percentages and maybe no pesticides. But I don't even think pesticides were still around then. I could be wrong. But I just remember going with some of, some of the homies to go and show their packs to check it out. And I was like, fuck, I guess I can bring my rosin in here. <laughs> so I would bring a couple ounces with me and just show them off around Sacramento area where the dispensaries are at closest to us. Um, got into All About Wellness um, and a couple, about two other ones. Can't remember off the top of my head. I don't think they're even open anymore. But yeah, I got to be able to show my stuff off there. And that lasted like literally six months, eight months. And then 64 happened. So I guess... 64 was like 2016, I think. I believe 2018. Yeah, somewhere between 16 and 18, yeah. So I guess, yeah, about a year and a half then, because I started in 16. So 17, 18. Yeah, that was pretty fucking cool. Because I had kind of somewhat already made a name for myself a little bit through other people who had that we knew of, and my wife knew of, another company called Spoiled. They make like stingers. They make a lot of, uh, I don't think it's butane ex- extracted, but it's similar. It's a solvent product. But homie Rob out there who uh, owned owned the that, that brand had a big crew. And he has a good friend that was also good friends of uh, Mercedes, my wife, growing up. And they kind of 
said like, yeah, my, my boy Nick, my, my husband Nick is making some stuff. So why don't you check his stuff out? And he was more than willing, open arms. He liked what I had to offer. And I think Emerald Cup was my first big move when it comes to like, because they pretty much cleared me out of everything I brought to Emerald Cup and gave that to all their friends. So it kind of spread like wildfire in that sense. So that, along with the seshes and along with being in dispensaries, like I was able to have weed maps on my banner that you can check me out at this dispensary, that dispensary where weed maps just started. But then they wanted to charge me close to a thousand bucks to represent me in Southern California. I was like, I don't have, I'm not in anywhere in Southern California. <laughs> so I'm not, and I can't afford that. I'm just, I'm a mechanic making some hash and rosin, man. Come on. <laughs> but I knew I needed to get the name out there if prior to 64 wasn't going to happen. Then 64 happened and I realized that, oh shit, I can't put my shit on shelves anymore. And that was a wrap. The last dispensary, which was all about wellness, had what they had. And if it they didn't get it sold, I think, by a certain date, they had to destroy it. And was that material mostly like sauces, like solventless sauces? Or was it a mix of... The stuff that I was doing? Yeah. That was just a... That was like when I was originally doing the coins... Like doing the nice, smooth, rounded, flat coins. I like was, I don't, I wouldn't say I was one of the first. I'm definitely not one of the first. But as far as my Instagram is concerned, it was like I was actually doing um, the paper sleeves that you would have BHO in back in the day. I would just put a gram of rosin in that and flatten it out. So it's like a, a coin like that big, maybe an eighth inch thick in clear Teflon paper or uh, uh, PTFE. And that's how I was moving my stuff. And then I kind of graduated up to jars, figured out who I can order jars from. I've always dealt with distributors and manufacturers my whole life with automotive stuff. So I already know who to call and how to talk to them and whatnot. It's mostly just like if it wasn't already auto buttered into a crumble, it would be like a fresh press, like super thin and a big little two and a half, one and a half inch wide oval. (laughs) It's hilarious. I think about it. It was definitely not the per- not the right way to store fucking rosin. Because <laughs> then it would like, it would slowly start to cure and turn into like a weird butter crystallization. Like the THGA was starting to crystal up. So you would open it up and it would just kind of crackle and, and be this weird, like old, degraded fruit roll-up texture. <laughs> and if it was really terpy, it would just seep out of the edges of, of that <laughs> fold. I remember I found some in my truck, my old truck. I found a, a card, one of those sleeves tucked away underneath my seat, like in between the seat and the center console. And I pulled it out and it was just oil soaked. Like it's probably been in there for like two or three years. <laughs> Leached my, out. Yeah, dude, it was ridiculous. I had so many of those leak everywhere. That's hilarious. But yeah, that's that's my experience with that. I learned quick on how to kind of figure out what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. Like, even cartridges and all that. I was buying cartridges from damn near day one. Like, how am I going to put this stuff in the cartridge? It's already in oil. How can I keep it in oil? You know, that's that. I, I don't know how many. I got a couple of boxes there of cartridges. I still need to R&D trying to find the right one because I know rosin in the cartridges is definitely frowned upon, but also, you know, liked by a lot of people. You know, the connoisseurs or the top dogs or whatnot might not be into them, but when it comes to a consumer standpoint, a lot of people benefit from just being able to grab a solventless cartridge that's clean yeah i mean i think there's a place for them i'm like me personally i think it's a great option like if you're on the go or 
I haven't tasted a lot of bins. Uh, I did try one from Dab Logic very recently that was pretty fire. Mm-hmm. So they're getting better. Yeah, they are. The technology is probably there, I would say. It's just finding the right manufacturer to fit our needs. Yeah. But it's still, yeah, it's not like taking the Dab. It's no. not even a, a Puffco. No. It's, it's the not that. Thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's like a light, kind yeah. of light buzz. But again, you know, if consumers are able to get a solventless pin versus a non solventless pin, even though they might have to pay a little bit more. Mm-hmm. It's a good option, I feel like. Yeah, it is. You can't knock it. I mean, it's uh, the our, our evolution of it is going to get there. And then they, they'll just be a normal part of our quiver. It'll just be something that is part of everybody, what everybody buys when they're right. in a the store. Now it's just, it's still at that point, that like tipping point of whether it's frowned upon or not. And it's solely based off of like, like you said, like how it's not a dab, not trying to get super exploded off the ship, but it does need to taste good. It needs to burn right. And I think that technology is still kind of in its infancy. Yeah, it's in the works, but it's yeah. getting better. Yeah, definitely. So tell me a little bit about your work currently. Because I know you mentioned to me you had been working with a, a new company. Mm-hmm. And again, we're going back to this idea of like Prop 215 ends. Prop 64 starts. Mm-hmm. You're no longer to be. You're no longer able to be on the shelves as Rackham's. What's the approach with 64? Underground, the sessions like we talked about before. I mean, guy had to revert back to that the, to make it to make it profitable enough to continue it, but at the same time giving people what they wanted and more consistently of what they wanted. I couldn't just stop and give up. I would have to go back to my old life of, of being a mechanic and the passion and drive for that was just non-existent uh, day after day. It got worse and worse. So moving forward, I kind of had to focus on branding and things of that nature and just kind of putting myself out there a little bit more than I really wanted to at that point in time, especially going to these sessions, not knowing really too many of the people there or the community and being a new a new face to a lot of these people who have been there for already three, four, five years. Now, all these sessions weren't new then. They were just new to me. So trying to act like I belong there and make a name for myself in that arena was a big step, which I ended up doing. I feel like got pretty confident in that. People enjoyed my vibe of being there. I enjoyed everybody else's vibe. Kind of worked out in such a small community in Sacramento that I started to know people's names. And we would have conversations at the tables that didn't, weren't even in regards to cannabis, just their daily life shit. I love that. I love that they can be so personable with me. And I, can, I actually had the op- opportunity to be that way back and share my stories, just like I have them to you. And I think that's kind of where the knowledge dropping of everything started to lift off. Doing it mouth to mouth, face to face, right there in person, slowly grew into the social media aspect of it, if it hadn't already. Uh, how I, I just wanted to share what I was learning as I was learning it. Because I'm, once again, by myself majority of the time. So I didn't have anybody to spitball these ideas or thought processes off of that made me turn to Instagram and social media. From there, not being in the stores wasn't really a problem because I think I'm, I was already in the sessions prior to being in the stores. And that's one of, one of the other reasons why the, one of the buyers came around met me and realized who I was with the DJ community and that's history. But moving forward from that, 
I just continued to be in a, to continue to truck along the traditional market, you know, just getting, doing, um, you know, hand to hand type stuff. P2P is what we call it out in the Bay, person to person by validation through other people and so on and so forth. So I wasn't just meeting random people, but also got to supply consumers that were literally patients with their medicine, like the, like the veterans that we spoke of and other people who had other ailments. Children is a big part of it. It's something that's kind of frowned upon to talk about when, when you involve cannabis around them. But if you do it the right way, a lot of children can benefit from this medication, like the RSOs and things of that nature. The 20 to 1s, the 30 to 1s, the 3 to 1s, 2 to 1 CBD, THC ratio. The medical side of it was a real big part of why I was doing this. I mean, obviously the recreational side because of everybody that I was surrounded with immediately. But outside of that, I saw the benefits to the, med- the medicinal side. And that's what piqued my interest more on the scientific side of everything, which I'm till, still to this day trying to wrap my head around. This last year was a kind of a big change for me in a sense of a couple of years ago when flower prices in California started to drop and indoor prices were pretty low, we were realizing that we needed to do something else or I needed to do something else as far as an income. So I, I got a, a job for True Steel which are local boys out here that make solventless recovery machines. Doing their, uh, you know, since I was a mechanic, I could build their machines. It's just like working on a car. So had all my tools there, worked with them for a while. But they also hired me based off of my expansion of Rackham's on social media. They didn't, they didn't have that much of a social media presence or marketing for that matter. So they hired me for two, two reasons, to build machines, install them, which is one reason, and then the marketing and media side of it. Rackham's grew to about, I think, 20, 22,000 up until last year, all organically. I didn't have, haven't had one paid follower or any of the sort, never even knew or believed in anything like that. Just kind of happened based off of the people that I knew, like Spoiled and other brands and other people who had some provenance on social media to share and spread my name. And that's kind of how that became it's uh, where it's at now. And then they hired me off based off of that to kind of help build their platform a little bit. They're in the cannabis industry. They're making machines for the cannabis industry. So I just felt it was a good job. Plus, I was with all my friends that I go to Burning Man with. All of them work for the same company. They're all cannabis heads as well. A few of them grow. Got to a point where I ended up in the office more than using my hands. And like being dirty and whatnot, and also being away from the, my lab for long periods of time, started to get that same feeling, the same vibe of like the mechanic job, kind of not enjoying what I was doing. So I had to take a step back, but I also was talking to a local lab about uh, processing for them and the white market. And they already had a true steel uh, full build out in their facility, all the ethanol recovery machines and, uh, and, um, decar tanks and all all the filters all that shit they had an empty space in their lab it's like well what do you think about solventless and they're like what do you mean it's like making some hash and pressing that hash into rosin the guy originally thought about it and i had thought about it previously but never really put too much energy into it and then come the end of last year they're like all right well we're interested in this let's see what which what you can do let's put our heads together it's like all right so I'm going to put my two weeks in or a month in with True Steel and we'll team up. I already have all my gear here, but here's a list of everything that you might need to match what I have to get the job done. 
But if you can't get that now, based off your financial situation, I'll bring my gear in and we'll do a trial run. So we did a trial run for about three months or so. And I pretty much produced about five or 6,000 grams along with Kaylin, who was here. He was my apprentice. And did all that, got the packaging done, and then ended up with a few orders back on the shelves. Unfortunately, even though it was made by Rackham's, quote-unquote, we we couldn't promote it that way because I'm a traditional brand and they're a legal brand. And the only way to have the two coincide is both brands need to be legal white brand, white market brands, licensed. So that was kind of the end of that as far as trying to promote it as such. And even talking about it with the buyers, like, yeah, Rackham's, you know, you know Rackham's, oh, yeah, I've known Rackham's. Yeah, he made our shit. It's like, okay, well, how come it doesn't say that? Right. So it does serve no purpose for them because they can't tell their clientele all that that's the case, uh, which was not a big deal, but not to like bag or anything on them, but they were buying material for ethanol extraction. Right. So terpenes were not the most, the, the thing at their forefront. So needless to say, during their process, a lot of those terpenes get pulled off and ripped from the cannabinoids. It's hard to reintroduce those if you don't know or have the means to do so. So in turn, I was also getting material from them that was definitely subpar at best and not something I would initially put Rackham's on in general. But I was still making the product for them and doing what I could because we had an agreement. And now the, their main focus is just uh, building up their brand recognition of their own brand to be able to move this product accordingly throughout the state of California. And we have, we, as of right now, that product is in a few dispensaries in South Lake Tahoe and uh, Sacramento area, the Valley and Santa Cruz and LA. We're working on the Bay area right now, but I've gotten to the point where I stopped working with them about three, four months ago. And now we're up to today where, you know, it's harvest season and we have mom's outdoor, which we just harvested for fresh frozen. We got our crop coming down indoor soon and I couldn't use my equipment there because that's, against the law, even though what I'm doing here is against the law too, because I'm in a traditional market. <laughs> right. But it's even more so there affecting other people. Right. And that's the last thing I wanted to do is be there with my own material in the lab. Something happened, BCC shows up and they are, start asking questions. I definitely do not want to get anybody else in trouble for what I do. So I picked up my equipment, brought it back to the HQ and just continued on as like Rackham's was years prior. You know, not much I could do until I'm gave, given the option to obtain my own license and do this the right way. Because I really do want to be in the white market. I want to be able to have and present my product to everybody statewide as much as possible and not have to fear about getting popped or who I'm talking to or who I'm dealing with, whatever the case may be. I'm not sure how much other people will probably talk about this type of stuff publicly. I am in the traditional market. Just there are other brands that, that you have talked to and, and that others vibe with, you know, that are some of the most top dogs in our state, let alone the country. It is what it is. But I would much rather do this the right way and pay my dues and go through the hoops if I have to. But the state of California does not make it easy for us, especially the mom and pop businesses. They do not. Like, I think Sacramento, you need to at least like, 100000 to start for filing fees and a couple hundred of grand in the bank just to get the ball rolling. Yeah, that's a lot of cash. That is, especially for, you know, an everyday person Normal who feels like, yeah. yeah, and that's and that's kind of who I am. I, 
I, re- I feel like I represent the everyday Joe of our society. And it shouldn't be this hard to, to be able to give and provide this medicine. You know, it's easy enough to grow and make, but the stigma and the prohibition of this shit is just outrageous still to this day. I, like you said about Texas, man, I can't disagree. <laughs> so, well, Nick, I appreciate you hanging out with me this long. I'll start kind of winding it down. Yeah, man. I know you don't necessarily associate with the word educator, but you have been doing some educational stuff. You got some upcoming stuff. So talk to me about how you feel about not taking this information, this experience, and sharing it with others in a public setting. Because I know you said public speaking has never been necessarily like your thing. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, all in all, I never thought I never thought or thought of or thought my, of myself as being a teacher in any way, shape, or form. But um, I feel like I do have a certain set of skill set to offer people and a cumulative knowledge that I've gained through very many, many people that you've recently talked to on your podcast and that I've seen in other podcasts and met personally. I mean, the names can go on, so there's no point in dropping a few of them because there's too many to list. But the fact that those people were able to openly share their knowledge with me and were accepting to the way that I presented myself to them was very eye-opening and the fact that like, I can easily do that myself. Um, I may sound or seem sarcastic on my lives or in videos or um, through my comments and social media or whatnot, but that's just because sometimes you just really get a dumb question and it deserves a dumb answer. But in all due respect, like, that's not the type of person that I am to just continue to be that way. Like, If somebody is genuinely has a concern or a question about their tech or their information that they don't really understand or isn't working in their process i'm always going to be able or willing to offer an answer even if it's not really the right one that they're looking for and just something that they can bounce off their own head and maybe think about what they're thinking about in a different direction you know that yeah sense. like you said earlier like giving some and then letting other people do their own exploration because mm-hmm. at the same time i feel like that's the only way that you really learn outside of using somebody else's formula. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're, you're going to learn by having those kind of open source questions or fucking up. And if I can help eliminate those fuck ups, like I learned how to eliminate them in my own regard, then that's, that's where I feel like I'm most beneficial at. And you said a lot of your learning came from watching other people. Fuck up. (laughs) Yeah, for real. I mean, and are not necessarily watching them fuck up, but them, them preaching back to the masses about their fuck ups and their mistakes and things of that nature. Like, okay, mental note. I'm gonna I'm gonna jot that down and make sure that that I do that. And then by doing so, in my own R and D, I was able to skip that fucked up step and excel and continue to grow. And I feel like that's just, that's one of the best ways that I've learned as of recently. Everything that I've been taught through my whole life career in general has been hands-on. That's how I've learned, whether it's through trade school or, or my dad, you know, teaching me how to bust my knuckles on an engine, whatever. I learned by being hands-on with things and fucking up. And that's okay. These 
kids and younger folks than me that are getting to this shit now need to understand that that's okay. But if you can make those mistakes minuscule by learning from other people and their mistakes, then you're just one step ahead. You know, it's, you're going to have that happen. You're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes. But like I said, yeah, to be able to minimize that impact just makes you that much faster to gain that knowledge. I feel like that's what I've done over the last five years. It's exactly that. And I'm still learning and still have my mishaps on the press today just as much as anybody else. It's not like I'm perfect at this shit. None of us are. We're only as good as the plants that we're growing or, or, or processing, in all honesty. That ability to use your head as a tool just as much as the tools that you're using in your hand is key, for sure. I feel like it's how you expand on that and use that to the best of your ability and not just expect somebody else to come forth with all of those knowledge so you don't... You, If I were just to share everything with you and your listeners, how is that... An, another person learning from that you know i don't feel like that's learning that's just like automatic answers and that's not growth in my opinion speaking of you told me you forgot part of the diamonds forming Mm -hmm. conversation so why don't you as far as the the tail end of that with yeah we were talking about that earlier quite a bit the process and i think you said we kind of left out where you actually form the melted THCA into something. Yeah, so there's a couple different options with that to pretty much quickly brush over it. Once it's melted into a liquid form, you can now have the option to harden it in in any way, shape, or form. So I was mentioning like Mendel Budsmith and like covert extracts, how they melt the, the THCA through a pouch into like a puddle. They typically gives you like kind of like a foamy looking type of puddle of THCA. Okay. It's usually pretty white, bright, because it keeps almost that much more terps back from it because it gets absorbed from the nylon. But with mine, you turn it into a liquid. And if you kind of run your dab tool across that liquid while it's still hot, you can kind of break up the bubbles as it's cooling down. But if you have a warm environment, that liquid can still be a little bit more malleable than if it was cold and just turned into a complete static filled shatter that's why i say keep your room warm so if you keep your room warm and you kind of drop your temperature on your hot plate you can continually move it to the hot plate bring it off fold it bring it to the hot plate pull it off and rinse and repeat so then you can kind of mold it into whatever you want or if you can get it rolled if you got quick hands like i do you can roll it and pull it into your your hogwarts sticks (laughs) <laughs> or your diamond stick yeah yeah a lot of people have seen me post on my Instagram page the, the THCA straws and things of that nature right and if you're if you have molds I know there's uh, companies now that are making like specific like half gram gram size or even smaller like quarter gram molds solventless uh, let me give him a shout out because this kid has been pretty good I'll have to come back to him but um there's a few cats out there that have started doing it. One, This one particular kid is in Maine, Rhode Island area. He's putting solventless diamonds out on the rec market out there. So on the white market, he's producing them now, kind of based off of the tech that I gave to him. And he took hit that and ran with it and made it his own. Another one of the guys who reached back out to me after he learned some shit that worked better for him based off of what I told him. 
Right. Pretty much did exactly what I asked him to do. I could have charged him if I wanted to, but instead I wanted you to share that information that you gained and feed that back to me and others. Well, you look for that. You also, this is something you and I briefly talked about last time, but I think it's in a conversation maybe that you and I were in like a live or something. You referred to diamonds as a novelty. Mm-hmm. What did you mean by that? Um, well, shout out to Solventless Remediation. That's his name on IG. Solventless Remediation. That was, I mean, that was one particular thing that I said in the heat of the moment to ruffle feathers, <laughs> in a sense. Uh, I, on one hand, I do believe in that, and I'll explain why. But on the other hand, when I do say shit like that publicly, it's kind of just to kind of push the wrong buttons with people and stir up conversation, in a sense. Because then people will ask that same question, well, why do you believe that? And you make them. Or, you know, talking about flower rosin, how it's inferior to hash rosin, anti-flower flower rosin club, that type of dumb shit. I love it. And the, my homies are the ones that started it. But we're, we all do this intentionally just to kind of, like, irk people. I mean, if we were all a big family in real life, we would be the shithead brothers that just fucked with everybody else. <laughs> so that's kind of how we are in the community. And people can stand true on how they feel about flower rosin and how it's, it's just as good, if not better, same quality as, as hash rosin. Other people will argue that. There's always going to be that natural reaction. In regards to the solventless diamonds and it being a novelty, to a certain extent, for to for an everyday normal person to do this, it's a waste of time because you're literally taking a perfectly good product and pulling it apart and putting it back together for what? Because it's cool and fun. Probably, it's going to benefit you in any other way. Maybe yes, because I did describe that way of being able to dose yourself differently than just taking a single dab. And also making use of things that you may not be able to make use of. That otherwise. too. Just like I talked about when we had the star microns and you have the non-viable microns below, above and below it. Another reason. So there's many variables to the solventless diamonds, just like there is variables dealing with material for hash. But the novelty side is just kind of like it's, it's when you come to, comes to a consumer standpoint, there's also that kind of split take on it that people do buy it that benefit medically from it which is what homeboy from rhode island mentioned to me as well like he's had patients that reached out to him that are helping their ailments a high thca dose could really benefit you for different types of issues that's proven but the majority of our community who are the younger younger generation or whatnot that just want to look for that recreational high and how loaded they can get i mean that's something cool to flash off if you can afford it you know taking an instagram picture or story of like my dope ass cool raw diamonds solvent or solventless it's they're cool to look at and in a sense they're cool to make in that sense they're a novelty but it's not fully a novelty you know so that's why i kind of threw that out there it's like i kind of like yeah it is it's i still have yet to be able to put those in the white market out here but Outside of that traditional market, like people, I've seen a good handful of people who just weren't into them, didn't enjoy them, didn't like the high, maybe their prerogative. But the majority of people who I've introduced them to have kind of blew their minds to a certain extent and they enjoyed them. Um, They continued to want to get more, so on and so forth. So there's a market for it. There's 
there's a, there's a reason to make for them to be made and they could probably be even refined even further. Like maybe having that double split jar with terps on one side, diamonds on the other. There's your dosing situation or maybe a compact that had multiple terpene profiles in it with a gram of diamonds. Like then you have options to blend or just do none or some. So there's different ways to, to skin that cat, just like I was saying earlier, but the novelty thing was more of a joke than anything else. <laughs> no, that's cool. But I'm it, glad it does that, have its place. But I'm glad that you bring it up as a point of conversation because it's interesting because it's, it's just interesting to hear your thoughts. On. Mm-hmm. For sure. You mentioned a little <laughs> earlier wanting to be in the white market. What are your aspirations for the brand outside of that? Well, that's a tough one because of the current direction where life is kind of heading towards. Like now I'm kind of back in full throttle production mode as we speak, getting new flavors, experimenting with new flavors in the garden. That can only take us so far in the traditional market. And who knows how long that will provide, you know, never know. But at the same time, if I were to able, if I were able to have the means and the ways, the capabilities of expanding Rackham's up to the next level, it being the white market, that could be huge. That could be life changing in a sense. And if I played my cards right, and I'm still on the fence, if I feel like I want to go that direction, um, I always love producing hash. The 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 nuances of physically doing it and all of that, drying it traditionally, like open air drying, if I had the means the space to do that, I would, more so than a freeze dryer. Never was a fan of them, but for convenience and scalability, I had to. But yeah, I mean, with our trajectory in life, our like our boat life, sailing, that could take away from a lot of what we want to do. So my thought process moving forward with at least the brand and the brand's sake is kind of slowly transforming it into more of an identity of a, or a persona than an actual product and making Rackham's more about me and us and our adventures and our, and our experiences and also my somewhat of a wealth of knowledge definitely not in comparison to, to other people, but just generally speaking that I could share with other people. So I've been looking at the consulting side of, of the industry and seeing where I can fit in there. You know, I'm not trying to go after it at, at a point where like, I'm trying to tell people that, that my way is the highway and the be all end all. That's not what I'm after, but I would like to make some type of consulting company within the solvent side of our industry that can help people benefit and excel in their business obviously the white market side because you got a lot of people that are just a lot of brands that are just suit and ties with a lot of money and they don't know our culture or our our side of and our history of this product and that needs to be known before you try to take a venture like this on i've seen that firsthand with within the white market already you know you might know of hashish traditional stuff but that's not necessarily what today's market is after in a sense when it comes to hash or hash rosin or live rosin from whole plant fresh frozen hash. And just like you mentioned at the beginning, like how quick or how new fresh frozen is. A lot of these suits suit and ties with a lot of money don't understand that, that there's a whole 
community inside of cannabis that is solventless. If you don't understand that, then you'll, you'll never work out. Your shit will always fail. So I want to be able to help companies and businesses that are just starting out, or maybe you already have a foothold, but just don't know the direction they're going in because they're thinking one way, but they need to be brought a different direction. Maybe I can help them benefit from my knowledge. So long story short, just kind of trying to figure out where my focus is going to run because at the end of the day, the wife and I are hoping and planning to be on a sailboat more often than not traveling the world and maybe even spreading my knowledge that way, you know, going to different countries and spreading my knowledge of hashish and solventless and rosin in a different way than has ever been thought before. You know, everybody flies and drives around. Doesn't mean, I can't, <laughs> doesn't mean I can't sell to you. Like if you give me a couple months advance, maybe I can do it. You know, <laughs> who knows? But another hash pirate. Yeah. A legal one. Like I don't have to have anything involved in my boat. Like who knows? I'll probably have a rosin press in my boat, but it'll be like one of the clamp ones at best. <laughs> Somebody has some, some beautiful flower or something in Colombia or, or South, South America or something that wants pressed, I don't know, Brazil, you know, shout out to, uh, to Wook Sauce and his girl. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think you told me like you had someone come out from Brazil to assess to like... Yeah, one of my to... very first uh, um, patients at, was Chris Stock and, and uh, Adelanto. Very first people to show up the day, day one of the festival, an hour before Boost even opened up, was a, an older gentleman from Brazil, Rio. Yeah, uh, that's wild, man. Yeah, I threw me for a loop. It's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? mind-boggling no that's funny favorite three hash brands outside of Rackham's damn you're gonna put me on the spot favorite three hash brand honestly I mean Mendo Budsmith is definitely one of them and for more reasons than just his product he's definitely one I've looked up to and been able to confide in about a lot of stuff generally speaking within cannabis he's definitely up there even though I don't, are you asking me this for brands that I've tried or just regardless? It was kind of an ambiguous one, so. It sounds like it. Because <laughs> I mean, Todd Resin Ranch, I mean, he's given me a wealth of knowledge that he will never understand. And I respect him for that. I respect him as a person, as a human being, and how he likes to educate vaguely through how, however means he does, even with his little rants on stories. I think <laughs> are fucking hilarious but they get, the, they get the they get the point across man and i love that uh resin ranch definitely yeah i'm glad he's up in our area for sure now he's up in grass valley can't wait to to link up with him and then um hmm. that would be a tough one i mean other than that there's so many other ones but i mean rich boys is one of uh one of a good friend now Processed a lot for him back in the day. We did a collab for a while, but even the collab aside, just uh, the friendship that I've built over the last few years with him has been pretty thick, and I appreciate because he—I mean—he gave me the opportunity to feed my family with some of the material that he was he put up for me, so on and so forth. And I couldn't ask for anything more. And we've been able to have a pretty good friendship. And he's—I think—a second-generation farmer from the ridge up here in this way. He knows what he's doing. Now he's getting back into the game with his own product again. He used to do stuff back in the day when first, Sessions first started. 
took a step back for a while. Now he's like doing a bunch of his, his uh, killer ass outdoors and light depths. And he's got Kayla's apprenticing with him, Washington pressing for him now. He's building a solid team again. Hopefully he'll be able to put, you know, a good product out sooner or later with, uh, with having Kaylin by his side. But he's just getting into the, the solvent side full throttle now on his own. And it's pretty dope to see. But, I mean, I, the list can fucking go on with when it comes to other brands. Top three is really hard. <laughs> that is really hard. <laughs> well, cool. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Last question. If you could hear anyone on the podcast who hasn't been on it before, who might that be? That's a good one. Um, I know he's really private, but American River Extracts. Also, you haven't had so grown solventless on yet. I, I would have to revert back to him, man. I mean, he is kind of the start for me. Other people might have their arguments of who did it first. We all can do that. But for me personally, he was one of the first people I saw. And then the diamonds thing, which kind of took me to a whole other level, was him. So, I mean, those two cats could be interesting. There's so many from our my local area, Gold Country, Gold Country Resin. Yeah, um, I met them the other day. Cool. Yeah, the, the, those cats fucking doing their thing out here. There's so many people out here, just from here to Sacramento, that are on their, their A game right now. That you, I mean, if, if you had the next three or four days, you could probably <laughs> get another 10, 15 podcasts. But yeah, I mean, I, I think Phil's story, even though he's talked about it on numerous podcasts, I think the way that you approach things could be an interesting conversation with him. Even um, another cat, Greg, I believe his name is from Jungle Boys. Yeah. Um, longer, Seven, 10, yeah. longer yeah. dreaded head. Yeah, yeah. He's doing fishing. Like, I would love to hear his story. Yeah, yeah, he's they press a lot, a lot of raws, and they sift a lot of stuff. So yeah, him and his girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another one. Um, bird, uh, bird extracts. Him and his wife are. I, I have, I'm partial to the couples that do that <laughs> right. You know, Cuban and his wife, Bird and his wife. You know, Greg from Jungle Boys and his wife. Me, and my wife. There's something there, and I think when you have that that relationship that kind of depends on each other for producing a good flower and knowing that you can either, you can take that flower and make a good final product out of even what's left over, just the trim, not even talking about fresh frozen is pretty cool and something interesting to see. I mean, when you have somebody who can wash and press just as good as you or like Cuban's wife, like she's the one that does the dry sift and shit. I know he's a G at it too, but She's the one that gets the praise, right? Yeah, I believe. Yeah, probably. <laughs> He's told me she does a lot of she does a lot of the sifting work. That's pretty hot to That's, me. Yeah, she. <laughs> <laughs> I even better. No, no disrespect, Cuban. <laughs> but yeah, I think people like that are interesting. I mean, I can go on once again. No, that's cool, man. I only I was asking uh, one, but yeah. I appreciate the the rest <laughs> of them. No, I agree. I, I think a lot of those would be interesting interviews and. Yeah, man, I always feel like it's just a matter of time, you know, uh, one of these things that you and I have been talking for a while and it just, it happened to work out now. Awesome. So, well, Nick, I appreciate you coming on. Everybody who stuck around with us, uh, we appreciate you listening. Again, you can follow him at Rackham's on Instagram. That's at R-A-K-K-E-M-S. 
Yep. Nick, anything else you want to say before we sign off? Um, just last but not least, you know, like I think I kind of mentioned it earlier, and I kind of am becoming a, a broken record at this point, but I just want people to understand, even the OGs that, that are list, maybe listening to this that might have some shit to say about what I've shared or whatever, just everything that I preach or I share in general is for my love of, of, of this and what we do and my passion for it. And all I want to do is just share what I've learned from you guys and give the masses that in any way, shape, or form I can. And that being said, it doesn't mean what I say is the be-all, end-all because it's not. not. And that goes for any one of us because there's so many different ways, once again, to skin this cat when it comes to hashish. There's so many different variables to deal with. There's everything. There's from your growing practices to your harvest, to your post-harvest process, to the way you wash, the way you dry, the way you press. There's so many different little nuances. So just take what I share uh, with a grain of salt. And if that works for you, run with it. If it doesn't, then push that aside and go to the next guy or, or try that out and learn the, the next way. That's the only thing I can ask. And that's the only thing that I hope people take from what I am willing to offer. Is just... I'm, I'm just trying to be honest about what I do because I care about it and I care about you. So, cool. Well, I appreciate your honesty and uh, I appreciate you, man. It was a pleasure being able to have you come out here. Likewise, man. Likewise. Thanks everybody for hanging out with us. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.